house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. the limits. Those who indeed push that envelope, tap our emotions for adventure, success, and joy, earn our admiration, and create that special something which brands a movie as being truly unique and trendsetting. Their ideals become our ideals. Their thoughts become the standards of our thinking and language. Their style of dress and movement are seen on the streets of our nation. And their moments of triumph and defeat become our successes and our failures. Hello, I'm Elizabeth I. And I'm Mary, Queen of Scots. And welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz Film Institute presents 100 Years, 100 Snubs. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, you hear us talk about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another it all went wrong, the Oscar hopes died, and we are usually here to perform the autopsy, but in this May, we are doing something a little different with our May miniseries. Every week in May, we will be looking back and choosing the 100 greatest Oscar snubs of all time, according to us. We'll have special guests calling in to offer their choice for snub submissions. We will be booting out the old nominees that we want uh, to make room for our snubs, and we're going to have a good time doing it. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I am here, as always, with my uh, monarch who who fucked shit up, (laughs) Chris Vile. Hello, Chris. We'll give our boots to the arrival to the throne. Now that you have become um, justly celebrated for your accent work, I feel like we are going to be getting uh, more and more of this. accent brought to you by the, you know, at least nine and a half hours a day I watching clips of Jack Loudon uh, <laughs> for science. Wait, from which movies specifically are you getting this? Uh... Oh, just really any interview. Yeah. Um, I'm not nice. that obsessive, but it's just like when, uh, I mean, whatever. Mr. Saoirse Ronan, handsome man. Oh, uh, what a couple. What a lovely couple. Um, Saoirse Ronan, who played uh, famously Mary Queen of Scots in the movie of that same name. Will we be including that performance in our snubs? <laughs> who is to say? Uh... Um, maybe. Um, Chris, we are already into part four of 100 Years, 100 Snubs. Where does the time go? Where do uh, the snubs go? We only have 40 snubs left. Where do broken hearts go? Well, true. Um, A song that would have been a good movie song, but was not. What movie are you putting that to in the 80s? Oh, gosh. I mean, where do broken hearts go? I mean, it really could have been in anything. I feel like... In the 80s, of course, it could be in anything. The whole, like, there's this weird... Love like, theme for Jaws 3, you know what I mean? Like, that kind of right. thing. Right. Like, you yeah. think of um, Against All Odds, which sounds like, you know, yep. a sports movie or something, but it's actually, like, a spy espionage type... I don't know. I haven't uh-huh, seen the uh-huh, bullshit. Uh-huh. Yeah, you get, like, the Thomas Crown Affair, which gets, like, yeah. the goopiest little, like, Windmills of Your Mind song or whatever, and it's just like, no, this is a spy thriller, so, okay, um... 
Some like nuclear power power plant meltdown movie. <laughs> yeah, the China uh, syndrome. To yeah, win. the China syndrome. Uh, <laughs> that's the late seventies, right? Yeah, I think it's Where very late seventies. Yeah, yeah. Well, Whitney Whitney wrote it years before she recorded it, and uh, and it was Where do broken hearts go? Love theme from the China syndrome. I'm into it. I'm deeply into it. Um, yeah, Chris, we only have. 40 snubs to go, plus uh, various picks from our guests who you'll be listening to. And we said before, uh, for the purposes of this project, 100 is a very, very small number. Very small number. uh, We really appreciate our listeners getting back at us on Twitter and uh, just in general, talking about their own choices for snubs. And the more I see of those, the more I'm like, oh, right, like... There's Love gonna be a lot getting chatty on Instagram too. There's, There's gonna be a, a lot, lot on the cutting like, room floor. Let's yeah. just say. Yes. Some that people are like, ooh, here's my niche one. And it's like, well, we're gonna make that person really happy. Or someone that's uh-huh. like says uh-huh. the most obvious one in the world. And we're like, And we're like, mm, that's not on our not. list. Maybe not. <laughs> but yeah. you know. Listen, we We are infallible. That's so. true. These these are uh, it's a bulletproof one hundred. We have uh, no no regrets. Number six, uh, we really don't have any regrets. Actually, I think I'm looking at ahead at the the uh, twenty that we have lined up for this episode, and it's a good twenty, I will say. So, um, yeah, part four or five next week will be our uh, May May finale, and. We'll see how your faves shake out. If you're if you're still you know holding out hope for your number one choice, you've got some you've got some options ahead of you. So, Chris, yeah. do you want to go through quickly the ground rules that we have established for 100 Years 100 Snubs? Listen, if this is your first time in this May mini series listening to us, you are probably going to be very confused. So we're going to reestablish <laughs> these ground rules. Go back to listen to part. Go back and listen to parts one through three. Uh, first of all, we're only doing one snub per category per year Maximum. at a time. Yeah. So say you might have one uh, highly discussed 2016 Best Actress snub. Uh, and we choose something different. As we encountered last week, yes. Justice <laughs> for Amy Adams in Arrival, and yet we couldn't leave off uh, Annette Benning in 20th Century Women. We wouldn't feel right about it. So, yes. Uh, correct. Uh, then we will also be choosing the nominee that gets replaced. So we will be booting Oscar nominees from this list. If they are the winner, we call that a house down boot. Uh, we also observe the right to enact the Nicole Page Brooks rule where we send them all home. That's right. And Have then, we done that yet? Has that happened yet? I'm still no, waiting. We love building anticipation. Maybe mm. it'll happen this episode. Maybe this episode. The other Maybe. thing is, sort of more informally, is we have limited ourselves to if we pick one actor for a snub performance that's their that's that actor's appearance on the list so for example when i chose tom hanks for a league of their own that We're not kind of throw out a bunch of tom hanks right tom hanks for captain phillips a performance we both love uh, uh it takes the back seat for that uh nicole kidman only one performance maximum we can't have list. 14 nicole kidman we can't snubs. have for much as we would like to i will say though as always our guests are completely immune from all of these rules our guests can do whatever they want we are permissive parents on this show so yes, yes. um yeah, and then it's all leading up to our choice for 
the biggest Oscar snub of all time. We are only one hour and presumably 17, or one episode and presumably 17 hours yeah, 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 yeah. away from buckle, that. Buckle uh, in. <laughs> <laughs> These episodes have been long. We have tried to be as succinct as possible, but as I mentioned on Twitter, we're ultimately talking about 20 movies <laughs> per episode. 20 movies that branch out into discussions of infinite more movies when we talk about we're actually what's only talk we're talking about 40 because you got to talk about the one you're booting too well and not just the one you're booting but like the ones you are considering booting so like it's a lot it's uh, the fractals and 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 you know the geometry of it all uh, uh spreads out pretty quickly chaos theory that's what ian malcolm was talking about in jurassic park chaos theory so yes. um but yeah that's the rules ladies and gents and i mean i don't think we should necessarily dither on uh, any more than we have to like i said these episodes have been long so we do we want to jump right in with your choice for your first snub of this episode i'm kicking us off okay kick us off all right i feel like we maybe tangentially looked at this best actress race um, that we're talking about 2007 in one of our recent episodes. Which acting race? Did we do supporting actress in 07? Well, we're about to do actress as well. <laughs> one of my favorite uh, performances, so we'll keep it brief because we also have an episode on it. It is Tong Wei in Ang Lee's Lust Caution. A fave of yours. A fave of mine. Great erotic thriller, uh... New, like Erotic a neo-noir ops. sort of like spy movie where she has to infiltrate a man, make her believe that. Do, make does she ever she infiltrate a man in this movie? Oh yeah. yes, it, 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 there's infiltration, there is deception, <laughs> there is costuming, and there's an incredible performance by Tong Wei who has to play the layers of deception that she's doing, and then on top of that, her own confusion, her own getting lost in this you know elaborate ruse that she's put on because mm-hmm. she can't tell if she is actually falling for this man who politically she is against um i love this movie we talked about it in our episode tong Wei becoming one of my favorite actresses also last year was decision to leave she would be my best actress winner for last year um yeah i'm obsessed with her she she yeah. she is mother to me um <laughs> And this is a fun Best Actress race. It Marion is. Marion Cotillard wins for playing uh, Edith Piaf in La Vie en Rose. Uh, Kate Blanchett uh, barks and yells a lot, and it is fun <laughs> in Elizabeth the Golden Age. That's right. Uh, Julie Christie in Sarah Polly's Away From Her. Laura Linney in My Beloved The Savages. And Elliot Page in Juno. I think I know where you're going, but I'm I'm interested to hear the the conversation about it. There's not really much uh, debate here which yeah. way I'm going. It's going to be a house down boot for Marion Cotillard. Oh, as much okay. As You're going we, a different way than I thought. Okay. As much as like her Oscar speech, you wouldn't trade it for the world. That is a bad movie. And I actually it is don't a bad think movie. she's very good in it. And like I know a lot of people would go for Kate Blanchett and Elizabeth Yeah, Golden that's Age. sort of where I, I thought you were going to go. 
I think that's not a good movie, but she is very fun in it, doing exactly what you want her to do. Um, in Commanding the like wind, that. sir? Is that what you want her to do? You want her to command the wind? Yes, she too can do it. Yes. Um, not sure if you're aware of this, but she too can also command the wind, sir. Um, also, you booted her for... because I know, we can't keep booting Kate Blanchett. <laughs> and you booted Kate Blanchett for... Jennifer Garner, yeah, correct. In, in so, favor of I Jennifer Garner, we, yeah. we can't just like. That's true. We can't take take the you know take the the bat to to Kate Blanchett's entire 2007. So yes. And while I think she's in a, ba- a good and a bad movie, I think Marion Cotillard is bad in a bad movie. So. I've always thought that. I always, for some reason, was under the impression that you liked her performance better than than I used I to like it a lot more than I did before i was really looking at it all that critically i think mm-hmm. that movie is a mess when you re when we when we did the best actress screen drafts and i rewatched that movie i was like oh jesus christ this is, <laughs> yeah this is bad yeah. um yeah i love edith piaf though so i think there were some blinders there and sure i mean whatever it is it is transformative in you know edith piaf's short life you know she went through you know uh, a lot of uh turmoil that you know that movie splash is huge to make uh sure. marion cotillard look you know four eight and dying <laughs> um four eight and dying is a heck of a descriptor um yeah yeah, it's it's I I fully agree with you on this one. We are in in lockstep alignment, so I'm glad that you went that way. Um House Down Boots for the winner of uh of best actress that year. So, shall I pick up the mantle with our next one? Yes, taking us to a very beloved movie year and not a good Oscar year. I'm getting downstairs. Come on. I hear him downstairs. Come on! Josh! Not a good Oscar year, but a very good year for movies 1999. So this one is maybe my most um, deranged? We'll see. Uh, when when we presented each other with our lists, this was one you, you took a moment, Chris, to be like, <laughs> okay. Um, when, <laughs> Go off. <laughs> when you saw this list, um, I, I have a good defense of it. So um I could have gone best picture for this uh for this particular film and said I'm going to go with best art direction from 1999. Uh, it's The Blair Witch Project, one of my very favorite movies of 1999, one of the most sort of landmark movies of that year. That's one I think that really does hold up for as much as people even at that moment were trying to pass it off as a gimmick movie and as Something that was, you know, primarily hype, primarily an online phenomenon. People sort of like, well, it's the best website for a movie, but I don't know if it's a good movie. Stupid. It's a great movie. It's a great horror movie. Uh, I think art direction's an interesting choice, I will admit, for a movie that is primarily in natural locations, and you send these kids out into the woods with some cameras, and you say, film your scenes, essentially. Um uh, art direction in this movie is credited to Ben Rock and Ricardo Moreno, who don't really end up doing a whole ton of other, don't have a whole ton of other credits on IMDb, which sort of puts a little bit of ammo into the column of like these people were just sort of like making it up as they as they go along. But I will say, 
there are a few things in this movie that have stuck with me forever. And those are art direction based. One of which is the, the little stick figures hanging from the trees. Mm-hmm. And, and again, am I going to give somebody an Oscar nomination for tying bundling little sticks together? Maybe. Absolutely. Maybe. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a really simple, but incredibly effective, uh, uh, little symbol there but the other thing is the cabin at the end when they find the cabin and they go inside the cabin and the the handprints on the walls and just the and again a lot of this is natural you know naturally occurring locations right a lot of this is location based but the little things that they do to outfit that house really enhance how terrifying the end of that movie is. And that movie's ending is one of the best endings of a horror movie I can think of. There's also like little things like the prop work on the like little bundled up thing that ends up being, I've always figured Josh's tongue is in that little like. Or like his teeth or something. Something. I've always, every time I see that scene, I'm like, what am I, I very Carrie Mulligan and in, in, in she said, right? What exactly are we looking at here? Um, <laughs> I but, remember people, when I saw it, like everybody, like, I saw it with an audience that was not feeling it. The time oh, had already turned on Blair Witch when I saw that in the theater. Uh-huh. And I remember people giggling during that scene because someone earnestly, like, gasped and was like, was that his dick? <laughs> and- <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Come on, guys. People I think it's his I tongue. Mean, I mean, it would be kind of scary if they were if a witch like just you know sent you your friend's dismembered dick sure. in the woods. Like that's pretty scary. I think you do see teeth in there. I've always thought it's his tongue because when you hear Josh screaming later, it's this very like unintelligible. Like he's not really forming words. He's just sort of like yelling. Um, yeah. So anyway. A lot of small details. This is a, again, a, this is a largely location-based uh, film shoot. But I think those details are enough to warrant an art direction nomination. I think we've we've nominated movies for less. So You are an emphatic advocate for effective and simple things that make a huge impact. Yes, that's exactly it. Um, so who am I going to boot out? Well, this is a category in 1999 that had a lot of very elaborate art direction, right? Uh, Sleepy Hollow is the winner in this category. Tim Burton's movies are always impeccably art directed. This one is no exception. Uh, Anna, rules. there's Anna and the King, which is the, uh, sort of, uh, remake of The King and I with Jodie Foster. There's the Cider House rules. There is the talented Mr. Ripley, which is, you know, I think when you think about that movie, you think mostly in terms of like design elements, you mostly think of costumes, but like the art direction in those, you know, the apartments in in Italy and whatnot, and the sort of depictions of wealth, I think it's very, very well appointed. Uh, And then Topsy-Turvy, Mike Lee's Topsy-Turvy, which is a period piece, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, Again, a lot of really good art direction, a lot of the depictions of the operettas on stage. There's there's a lot to go with. So, like, it's a lot of art direction in all of these nominations. Um, I think the movie 
the movie of these five that I think is the least is probably Anna and the King. I think art direction wise, I think there's probably more to be lauded in Anna and the King than there is in the Cider House Rules, a movie that I tend to stick up for more than not because it gets so sort of dumped on when people talk about the the shoddiness of the 1999 Oscar nominations. Um, there's period detail, of course, sort of all over the Cider House Rules, but I'm not sure it ever really elevates to the point of nomination worthiness. So I'm going to boot out the Cider House Rules from 99 and replace it with the tied-together sticks of the Blair Witch Project forevermore. So there we go. Chris, what do you have next? I see ghosts, y'all. I see... Ghosts. What happens uh, to all of us, man? Have you seen them too? Yeah. Huh. They had come to you at night. Huh? Storm and Nong comes to me down there every night. Now he talked to you like he talked to me. Come on. Come I don't on. think so. Come on. So I tried to avoid, maybe not tried to avoid, but like in assembling this list and like the difficulty of it, I wasn't really. Uh, the difficulty of that task, I wasn't really leaning into super recent things. Same. If Very same. I'm remembering my total list correctly. I think this is about to be my most recent entry, mm-hmm. which still, like, uh, preparing for this and compiling stuff, it still just kind of boggles my mind, boils my brain. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that Delroy Lindo was not nominated for to five bloods. We're talking yeah. best actor in 2020, the year of the pandemic. A Netflix movie I know. when like Netflix essentially was designed to reign supreme yep. over the Oscars because they had all of like they were essentially not affected by the pandemic, right? And they flub the oscars and somehow you know i think there is something to be said though like it sounds silly because you know everything everywhere just ran a gauntlet for an entire year before winning best picture but mm-hmm. the five bloods was one of the first you know pandemic movies where people felt like they could watch yeah uh, like uh like a real movie full meat and potatoes real movie and not feel like it was a compromise because Mm -hmm. like because it was always going to be on netflix yeah yeah it was always going to be on netflix even though it would have certainly had some type of theatrical push Mm -hmm. it was supposed to break the netflix can situation because spike lee he was originally supposed to be the jury president that year and was going to show defy bloods out of competition right um and since then, Netflix doesn't want to show anything out of competition, whatever. Um, who cares? Uh, yeah. But this movie, it feels like, got buried in the whole shuffle up the year because it was so early for a lot of those movies. Mm-hmm. And Netflix throughout the year kept, like, paying out the ass for these movies, like Malcolm and Marie, right. Pieces of a Woman, Malcolm these and things Marie. that, like, for, like, yeah, all... Uh, purposes you look around in the culture and are they real they're not yeah. they they don't exist but netflix would pay 25 million dollars to buy those movies um and like they kept throwing so much shit at the wall in a way that it felt like maybe they were trying to 
you know, run the table at the Oscars. You right. Know, they like, had... ooh, can we get every nomination this year? Like, right. Yeah. Right. And it never felt like the Five Bloods was part of that equation. It gets yeah. a Terrence Blanchard nomination for, I mean, incredible work from Terrence Blanchard. But it's like, yeah, it was a great ensemble. I and Delroy Lindo at the top of it is like the fucking. King yeah. Lear of all Spike Lee characters ever. He has these. He has the scene where he has the panic attack. He has the scene where it's the direct address to the audience. It feels like this huge grand performance for this performer who's never been nominated before, has never gotten his due, and yeah. and like, who by it wasn't and large like people weren't talking about this performance like. Yeah, people like in our circles were like, "Yes, this is the performance of the year." Period, mm-hmm. and I don't. And it's not like the industry necessarily walked straight by it. You know, critics supported it. He won New York. He won National Society. Mm-hmm. He gets a Critics' Choice nomination, and then it stops. Yes, and it's you know, it's, it's frustrating, incredibly tortured performance. That, you know, goes to some dark places. He's playing a Vietnam vet returning to Vietnam to, you know, recover this possible treasure from his uh, platoon with all of his returning, uh, you know, uh, fellow soldiers. And I don't I mean, like, I wasn't as enamored as the movie as some people were, but it was just like talk about a performance that just like blasts you to the back of the room and pins Absolutely. you to a wall with how fucking he's great electric it is and i mean tell orlando's a legend i don't know how this didn't happen <laughs> well and he's like he's sort of this like beloved character actor right he's been in so many movies in smaller roles spike lee's kind of the only one who ever elevates him to the status of lead in movies mm-hmm. um in movies like uh like clockers or like uh um um crooklyn certainly um Mm -hmm. but usually that i mean we've seen it with like people like jk simmons and and octavia spencer where you know you get these beloved character actors who have been in a billion movies and it's like well that tends to help them (laughs) because Mm -hmm. they've you know starred with with eight billion people in hollywood so I think there was some initial confusion over if he would be placed in supporting. Everybody felt like that seemed to be. And then there was that odd Chadwick Boseman campaign for Mm -hmm. Five Bloods where they tried to sort of eke out a second um, nomination for Boseman, a second posthumous nomination for Boseman, um, which was, you know, okay. You know what I mean? Like, right. It, it it ultimately didn't end up working and you know we can sort of debate the effectiveness of trying to sort of thread that needle um yeah and try and like latch onto a moment you know what i mean but you wonder if maybe that took a little bit of the juice out of a campaign for delroy lindo who could have really used a lot of that focus mm-hmm. so Who's well, to say? But I mean, like, yeah, and the movie overall didn't feel like it got Netflix's attention in yeah. a way that it, you know, could have been a major Oscar contender. Well, like uh, you said, by the end actor, of the year, they kept like piling on like more and more contenders, right? By the end of the right. year, it was 
you know, Chicago 7 and Mank and Ma Rainey and Pieces of a Woman. And and the Oscars were in April that year. And yeah. this was a movie that hit Netflix, I believe, June? in May. Yeah, May even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, so Anthony Hopkins wins for The Father in that the, really the unfortunately uh, programmed uh, moment of television. Yeah. Uh, Riz Ahmed nominated for Sound of Metal, Chadwick Boseman for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Gary Oldman for Mank, and Stephen Yeun for Minari. I think Delroy Lindo runs circles around everyone uh, in this category. Um Though this is not a house down boot situation, I think this is a pretty good. I think it's a good lineup. category. Yeah, I think it's a good yeah. lineup. Yeah, my boot, which is not going to make you happy, and I'm I'm not a man hater, but like I do have to. I, I get mean, it. Gary Oldman. I think is the obvious fifth place for me. Um, I love Mank, and I think I would agree with this selection. Um, yeah, I think that's part of the problem with Mank is like it's all centered around this character who it's not that he's bad in the movie, but like. I don't really think you come away talking much about Gary Oldman's performance. I agree, but I also don't think Mank depends on that for its success. I think he's the central title character, but I think there's so much else going on in that movie to be able to appreciate. The supporting cast is so fun. Arliss Howard, Amanda Seyfried, etc. And even just like the, the, you know, just the, the way this whole world is depicted and the, the, the script I think is really strong anyway, but uh, continue. Yeah. I wouldn't take that Amanda Seyfried nomination away for the moon um yeah uh i i I love this performance del rolando rules i hope that he does get to have you know that celebrated moment someday agreed all right well did you at least think the characters were well developed what characters there's a bunch of little kids there dressed up in the animal costumes good night everyone well sweetie don't be mad at me that's just one man's opinion All right, so we're going to go back in time almost 20 years to the Best Actor race of 2001, the Golden Globe winner from that year. It's Gene Hackman in The Royal Tenenbaums, which is a – it's one of those – nominations. I think in in selecting my choices for 100 Years, 100 Snubs, I had a mix of, well, it's just like – it's my choice, and I, I will, you know, make plausibility be damned. I'll, I'll throw in the Blair Witch Project for art direction. And I think some of them are ones where you look at it, and it's like, how did this actually not happen? Because it makes all the sense in the world that it would happen, and it's also incredibly deserving. And that's where Gene Hackman in The Royal Tenenbaums falls. Hackman's a two-time Oscar winner, a sort of beloved i mean he's sort of whatever the reputation for him for being irascible and kind of uh um difficult uh precedes him but regardless he's so well respected as an actor right he's he's you know he's such a great he's one of those actors who is a phenomenal actor but is also a great movie star in that mm-hmm. he can, you know, he's endlessly adaptable. He's you immediately can buy him as a hero or a villain or comedic or dramatic, and he works in kind of all contexts. That's the Gene Hackman sort of superpower, and also the fact that he's in this incredibly quirky movie. The Oscar voters 
liked the Royal Tenenbaums enough to give it a screenplay nomination. So it's not like it was completely off of their radar. He was in the conversation enough to have won the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy. He's also so featured. You know what I mean? Like, he's the title mm-hmm. character of this movie. He's He gets the showiest stuff in a lot of this, you know, in a lot of this movie. In a role completely different than anything he'd ever been nominated for an Oscar for. He's, he's, I mean, like, in... He's funny, but his character also, like, dies, so there's a little bit of sentimental uh, pull to it. He's acting with children. He's acting with adults. He's he's every single... Complete bastard. Complete bastard. Every single line reading is so funny. It's so... Let's go shag ass. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, The scene where he sort of confesses to Angelica Houston that he's making it up and sort of doubles back on himself and then, you know, admits it for real, where she finally has to just, like, hit him and just be like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> um, telling Pagoda that's the last time you stick a knife in me. Um, so, just so many fantastic lines. And one of the great comedic performances, one of the great performances in any Wes Anderson movie, I think. And... It's it's just befuddling to me that all of those ingredients were there and it doesn't end up and he didn't even seem like he was particularly close. Like, I feel like going into Oscar nomination morning that year, I don't think a lot of people even had much of a hope that he would end up on that in that category, which is Sean Penn stormed the field and he'll probably do it again at some point. Like, yeah, Sean Penn. um crashed the party let's say so yes uh the best actor nominees that year denzel washington wins for training day historic win russell crowe for a beautiful mind who had won the year before and if he hadn't won the year before he probably would have won for a beautiful mind because that's your sort of best picture barnstormer sean penn also when he threw the phone right does he throw the phone in a beautiful mind year it's somewhere within that no he threw the hmm. We've broken down this timeline before. We can't get into it. We can't it. get Keep into it again. Inside. Yeah. Uh, Sean Penn, as you mentioned, I am Sam. Will Smith for Ali and Tom Wilkinson for In the Bedroom. So this is, I mean, it's easy in that, like, last hired, first fired, like Sean Penn sort of snuck into that lineup at the end for a bad performance in a bad movie. So, and yet... Part of me is tempted to boot Russell Crowe because I hate a beautiful mind so much. So, so much. Um, Ultimately, I'm not going to be quite that bold. I think Russell Crowe is at least giving a performance that I could watch without having to put, like, my hands in front of my face. You know what I mean? A little bit. And that's what we're getting with Sean Penn and I am Sam. So that to me is, uh, it's the easy choice. So we're going to boot, uh, Sean Penn for I am Sam and not think any more about it. Can you imagine? I mean, like if this was an actual replacement, if Gene Hackman had been there and Sean Penn hadn't kind of swept in somewhat at the last minute with that movie. Yeah. This would be an amazing lineup with, you know, like, Four people who would deserve to win, and then Russell Crowe. Yes. It's... Yeah. 
I think that's exactly right. I think you look at Tom Wilkinson. I think I've always said that Will Smith and Ali should, looking back, that's the Oscar-worthy performance of the three that he's been nominated for. Um, You don't take away anything from Denzel by saying that, but I think if I'm handing out an Oscar in this category as it stands without Gene Hackman, um, I would probably give it to Will Smith. But... Yeah, it's an incredibly strong category if you add Gene Hackman. That's it's mm-hmm. it's these little these little moves that can go from a category being like, oh, okay, to like, ooh, all timer. So speaking of Gene Hackman, Chris, where are we going next? Now this is what Clinton didn't understand when he started in on school prayer and gays in the military. All <laughs> right for you. Now there's an idiotic issue. Gays in the military. I mean, those haircuts, those uniforms, who cares? Uh, so we are, uh, going down south with Gene Hackman, uh, uh, perhaps to, uh, where is, uh, where is he from? Uh, anyway, we're going even further south from where he is from in this movie to Florida. We are going to, uh, the best picture race of 1990. I wrote 1998 in here. That is not correct. It's 1995. Six. 96. Uh, Mike Nichols's masterpiece, The Birdcage. The Birdcage. It is a masterpiece. I think you chose the right word for that. It's an absolute masterpiece. I, I mean, I always uh, erroneous, erroneously remember it as one of those movies that got one Oscar nomination during the uh, two categories of original score years, which is true. But that does not mean it got an original score nomination. It got an art direction nomination, which is cooler than getting yeah. uh, a song nomination or a score, score nomination. Yeah. I mean the birdcage come on. It is so endlessly quotable. I was almost like it this was something that I thought of multiple options as well. I thought of both Robin Williams and Nathan Lane. They are both incredible performances. They both should have been nominated. Mm-hmm. Um anyone in the supporting cast is wonderful. Uh yes, Hank Azaria does give uh, uh cringe in the movie but but he's funny is the other thing it's like it's it's there's some things that it's like funny. he's playing you know a stereotype and like yes. the line itself is funny regardless of the stereotype that's the thing there's a lot of that but then there i mean elaine may's script i mean it is so uh what a lovely bunch of coconuts that she was not nominated for this. And it's like, you know, La Caja Fall was already yeah. a popular international hit, became a popular musical. And then it's like, well, what can you even do to, you know, continue that success? Oh, you make a comedy masterpiece where yeah. not only is it breathlessly funny from start to finish, but actually has you know, some emotional depth to it and mm-hmm. interesting characters that are, you know, compelling to spend time with and consider. Um, it's also a huge hit that year is the other thing. A massive hit, a hundred million dollar movie. And like, you can talk about, you know, representation in terms of like, Nathan Lane was gay and outish, but like Robin Williams, but like Robin Williams is fucking perfect in that movie and like the hottest man who ever lived well and um, it's a genuine love story at its like yes. at its core that doesn't shy away from that at all like that this this is a movie that has a lot of fun with the nathan lane character but it never sacrifices his essential dignity and mm-hmm. 
Um, it's ultimately a movie that comes like that never shies away from the fact that like these two people love each other so much that they are willing to go to, you know, all of these lengths for each other. And in 1996, in a hundred million dollar mm-hmm. movie, like that's it's really it's really and quite tremendous. Like we can all sit here and be like the son's the villain of the movie blah blah blah, blah and blah, it's blah. like but the movie does i think for a movie from the 90s put him in the position of being wrong yes in asking yes. them yes. to not be themselves and uh yeah i mean what a, what a perfect movie um i know it's so good I, it it had to be on this list somewhere. I think I this like, is no, the right category to be put it in. Best picture. Yeah. The I think the first, maybe it was the second SAG ensemble winner ever, and it's like if we had only equated that with a best picture win in the season at the time, I maybe know. people would have taken it that seriously. I know. Um, yeah, but, but one of my favorite SAG ensemble wins ever is the Birdcage. Yes, right. Um, great choice, SAG. Good who, job. Who in the movie doesn't deserve uh, a, a, a trophy? Yeah. Uh, including it. Christine Baranski. Oh, especially Christine Baranski. My goodness. <laughs> the woman dances. The woman, you know, uh, pulls off jokes. She's fantastic. Yeah. Um, this is the year the English Patient wins. Also nominated were Fargo, Jerry Maguire, Secrets and Lies, um, and Shine. Oh, Shine. Oh, Shine. Our little punching uh, bag. <laughs> we're picking on you in the month of May. Shine, you're getting the boot. It is not uh, even up for... No, today. it's very easy. Yeah, unfortunately. I think even the people who want to shit on the English patient are like, why is Shine a Best Picture nominee? Yeah. Um, yeah. Was Shine a Miramax movie? I don't think Shine was even Miramax. It's like... I don't think it this was. This is, of course, the year the like indie takeover, which is... I mean, maybe when you have this mega star late in the year Christmas release in Jerry Maguire as like a studio comedy, it makes it harder for something like The Birdcage, which I believe was a summer movie. Yeah. But I don't know. I'm not shitting on Jerry Maguire, but like The Birdcage is a gr- is like, you know. Yeah. I agree. Um I genuinely don't know what studio had it was not Miramax. Um it's at least was it early Lionsgate or something? Let me check IMDb or like Polygram. Polygram that year was Fargo. I'm pretty sure. Right. So, um, I think that was probably here. Let's see if IMDb gives me. It's not Sony Classics. Well, the other thing with Shine is all of these production companies are like it's Australian, you know, distributor are uh, oh Fine Line. Ah, it yes. was a fine line features U.S. release. Okay, that's interesting. Good for them. Good for fine line. Viacom probably still has those rights. Yeah, yeah. All right. Oh, shine. Yeah, Joe, where are you taking us? Oh. take us to the best original score category of 2006 with one of my when we decided to do this project this was probably in the first five of uh, snubs that i jotted down that i knew i would have to include in here um 
It was is this one. Let me double check our list because I feel like this overlapped. Was this also on it yours? Didn't top five. It didn't overlap our top fifty. The Birdcage did, but I'm sure this was on my long list too. I bet it was. Um, Clint Mansell's never been nominated for an Oscar, which is surprising considering he's done scores for movies like Requiem for a Dream and Black Swan, both of which were big Oscar players. Uh, In 2006, he sticks with Darren Aronofsky and does the score for a movie called The Fountain, a sort of long beleaguered project. We really do have to uh, soon-ish do our episode on The Fountain. Um was originally going to be a Brad Pitt, Kate Winslet movie, hugely ambitious. Found, uh, what did I say? Winslet. Winslet, Kate Blanchett, sorry. Brad Pitt the and Kate Blanchett. stands are going to come for you for that. Truly. Um, Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett, uh, who ended up in the same movie in 2006 anyway when they were both in Babel, uh, which is a very interesting turn of events. But anyway, um, Lot delays and turnarounds and, and whatnot. It ends up getting released in 2006 as a Hugh Jackman, Rachel Weiss movie, uh, multiple timelines. Hugh Jackman plays a conquistador searching for the fountain of youth in this, uh, you know, years ago parallel storyline where in the present day storyline, he plays a doctor who is trying to help save his wife's life. She's uh, uh, has a terminal brain disease or something <laughs> i'm trying to remember exactly she's dying uh she's dying and and so there's these themes of you know uh, the fountain of youth and these parallel characters and then you have this flash forward storyline with uh hugh jackman in lotus pose floating in a bubble in <laughs> in the future uh in the in the deep 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 future uh and it's weird it's desperately deeply weird but i think if you take it on its own terms it's quite a ride and guiding you through this ride is clint mansell's score which really asserts itself uh, throughout this movie this is an incredibly sort of uh you know operatic kind of uh very highly uh stylized movie and the score really matches it it's one of those scores that subsequently showed up in a bunch of trailers and tv mm-hmm. spots for a lot of different movies i think those were just like ripped off for trailers also too, that if not lifted directly it's uh it's a tremendous standalone score to listen to it's sort of you know it's very sort of sweet and lovely in parts and then it gets to these like incredibly dramatic crescendos and uh the part that's used in the movie for the scene with the tree at the fountain of youth is uh is tremendously good it's so rousing it's so you know uh dramatic and it's kind of undeniable and it's shocking to me that in this year where like the best original score category was not super pinned to the best picture category like it sometimes is now i think we've talked about how recently the crafts categories have become more and more tethered to best picture in a way that I don't love. Mm-hmm. Um, but back in 2006, you had nominees like Thomas Newman for the good German or Philip glass for notes on a scandal. You had Javier Navarrete nominated for pan's labyrinth, Alexandra Desplat for the queen. And then the winner was Gustavo Santoyaya for uh, Babel uh, winning his second year in a row after he had won for Brokeback Mountain 
the year before. And um, I sort of went back and forth on this one because I don't think The Good German is a good movie, necessarily. And, like, of those five movies, it's my least favorite. But, you know, I love Thomas Newman. You know I love a Thomas Newman score. And uh, not to pick on... I think I... have. Did I boot Desplat earlier in this project? <laughs> I have booted the Queen. <laughs> uh, you, I know, have booted the Queen. But I think I might be booting that one... That was the same year where uh, he had the Painted Veil, right? And the Queen was sort of nominated instead. And the Painted Veil score is so good. That's the thing. That's the thing. So, um, I in my memory, the, the score for the Queen was seen as a little bit of a uh, lesser, you know, lesser option. So, I think... You know, again, we're, we're picking on certain movies. We're picking on Shine. We're picking on the Queen... Uh, sorry to do it. Sorry, you know, to this queen. But Clint Mansell for The Fountain is one of the most no-brainer should have been an Oscar nominees of my lifetime. So that's going in. And uh, the queen is going out. So that's where we have it. Chris, what do you have next? Oh my god, run upstairs! Why are there hands on the wall? Is that the Blair Witch? No, it's uh, someone. <laughs> someone's here. It's 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 it's. Oh, we have a guest. Oh, good. Hey, Joe and Chris, Kevin Jacobson here, calling in to say I'm very excited for this mini series. Can't wait to see how it turns out. Uh, my biggest snub that still sticks in my craw to this day is Naomi Watts in Mulholland Drive. Uh, that's a performance where she is just exploring so much. She gets to show her full range. I think she nails the sort of dreamy qualities of the beginning and then the very despairing parts towards the end. And it just kind of bums me out because I don't think she's ever topped that performance. Also, David Lynch was nominated for Best Director. You know, I think it would be one thing if the Academy was just like, you know what, this is too weird for us, and they just ignored it completely. For it to be, like, enough on their radar to get that nomination, but not her, when also there have been performances from David Lynch films that have been nominated, it just bums me out. Uh, As far as who I'd replace, though, I... Can't say that I've seen Iris in a while, but I don't know that Judy Dench needs another nomination that she wasn't winning for. So, you know, probably her. And then I think sub in Naomi Watts and you have a pretty iconic lineup. Kevin Jacobson appearing to us as the Blair Witch in the woods to say silencio. Um, <laughs> you should tell us to be quiet sometimes. Um, first of all, Kevin, for booting uh, Dame Judy, uh when I see you, it's on site. Um, but I understand that choice. Um, somebody Naomi won't Watts. be somebody won't be getting named in the naming of cats. Uh, we can <laughs> we can assure you. Um, I think that was a performance Naomi Watson Mulholland Drive that was on both of our long lists, right? Yes, yeah, and would have ended Kevin up snatched on, it up. Yeah, Kevin taking this selection freed up a spot for at least one of us. So. We thank you for that, if nothing else, Kevin. An impeccable <laughs> choice, a baffling, a baffling eventuality that Naomi Watts. We, you know, we've talked about this before. Uh, we did our whole mini series on Naomi Watts. We talked about how the category confusion from Mulholland Drive certainly didn't help her. 
Um, Mulholland Drive being a movie that got only one Oscar nomination, but it was for David Lynch and Best Director, is both disappointing and yet, like, weirdly kind of perfect <laughs> in a way. Same for Blue Velvet. Where the, the, uh, the Academy was like, I don't know, man. Like, it sure is something, though. And, and the thing about that performance in terms of Oscar is like part of the reason why it's so impactful is you have no idea who this actress is. You've mm. never seen her before. Mm-hmm. But like, if we had maybe seen her in like one other performance, not Children of the Corn 5, or the whatever. tank girl girlies knew, the tank girlies all, uh, all knew. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. But like, if they. People recognize the name Naomi Watts somehow. I do think she probably gets nominated. Probably so true. It's this weird kind of paradox. As it is, I bet you she was pretty close to a nomination that year. I agree. Uh, it's a great one. Chris, you are bringing us our second Wes Anderson performance of this episode, which is... Run to the Cathedral of Santa Maria in Bruckneplatz, buy one of the plain half-length candles and take back four Klubecks in change. Light it in the sacristy, say a brief rosary, then go to Mendel's and get me a courtesan au chocolat. If there's any money left, give it to the crippled shoeshine boy. I am. Uh, one we have talked about a lot, yes. especially in terms of its... Uh, surprising inability to land that Oscar nomination, mm. especially because... It for some reason I had remembered it as not doing as well in the season Same. of Best Actor 2014, but uh, Ray Fiennes in the Grand Budapest Hotel nominated for BAFTA, The Globe, and Critics' Choice. Which, like, yes, you're talking about a comedic performance, but you would think that especially getting that BAFTA nomination, it would kind of close the deal for this movie that got what like 12. I was going to say it was the something. nomination leader. I'm pretty sure uh, that year. And I think it won the most that year. Yeah. Um, It definitely won the most that year. That was the year where uh, Birdman wins Best Picture, but the the awards themselves are pretty well spread out. So it's puzzling that for Grand Budapest Hotel to do that well with the nominations and with the overall Oscars that year and have this virtuoso lead performance by a former two-time nominee. You know what I mean? Like, it's... Two-time nominee, but not since the 90s. It, I think people have not realized that they have not nominated Ray Fiennes except for Schindler's List and The English Patient. Yeah. It's a long time ago. And also, mm-hmm. are those the most indicative of his career? Whereas, you know, if they had nominated this performance, which is so funny, so, like, dry and withering and mm-hmm. of a piece with the world that Wes Anderson creates much and like kind of towering over the movie, similar in the way that you described uh, Gene Hackman for that movie. Yeah. He's just so funny. Like we both on this show have not only talked about this performance and it not getting nominated many, many times, but we've also talked about, we don't really love this movie, but like this is head and shoulders. Our favorite thing about it. Uh, Ray Fiennes is wonderful. Yeah. He's so good. I I will say, I was I was torn in two ways about including this on this list. One, there was another Rafe Fiennes performance that I wanted to include, which is his performance in A Bigger Splash that I think is like... 
this performance on. I am a little surprised that you didn't choose that one instead. Um, I I love that performance. This one just maybe makes more sense to include in this list of these two. Uh, Maybe that is cowardice on my part. Who knows? But I also was torn between doing Channing Tatum for Foxcatcher, which is the same exact year. Yep. Um, a performance that I think is really incredible and should be that man's Oscar nomination that still uh, hasn't happened. Has eluded us, yes. But, like, Ray Fiennes has to be on this list just because it's like, where, 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 the, where's his next nomination happening? Yeah. Uh, it's not happening for directing because he does not make interesting movies. Oof, oof, the shots uh, have been fired, okay. Um, but I think he's in an interesting era kind of as an actor, even though he's still doing franchise things like James Bond movies. I could easily see him getting a supporting... Uh, performance in something that leads to an Oscar win at some point. I think he still is. I think we underestimate. We're probably still have a performance to talk about later in this episode, but we won't spoil that. I think we underestimate the sort of global reach of him being the guy who played Voldemort. Like he's going to be a recognizable actor forever with a broad, broad audience. So is he going to have to be seventy years old or something? For I hope a not. Performance that's not going to be one of his best that he wins for, like. He plays an old grizzled boxing trainer in a... Is that what you're saying? Is that what's going on? Is that what's happening here? An old grizzled boxing trainer who dies peacefully in his sleep <laughs> and says a lot of swear words. Right, and, right, right, know. right, right, right. Actually, no, that's not... That... that I think that trend in Best Supporting Actor has died. What he needs to do nice now... Nice dad. Nice dad. Yeah. He needs to play someone's nice dad who you can feel sentimental feelings about yeah. and, you know, bear, you know, 75% of the emotional burden of the... Who of, will cast you know, Ray Fiennes in a nice dad role? Who who, yeah. who will get him at that Oscar? Yeah. I'm into it. I'm with it. Whatever it takes, get Ray Fiennes that Oscar. Uh, okay, so the lineup, Eddie Redmayne wins for playing Stephen Hawking in The Theory of Everything, Steve Carell is nominated in Foxcatcher, Bradley Cooper in American Sniper, Benedict Cumberbatch in The Imitation Game, and Michael Keaton in Birdman. Indeed. I feel like this is an interesting, like, Rorschach category, mm-hmm. because I think you ask five different people and you get five different answers mm-hmm. on who they would boot. Mm-hmm. So this is one I kind of had to think about and piece together uh who i would boot not for all the money in the world would i would i boot michael keaton i'm still bummed that he didn't win while i loathe american sniper bradley cooper is doing his best in that movie Mm -hmm. and i understand people who like that performance steve carell is (sighs) I don't think he's bad in the movie. I think it's that he is nominated over Channing Tatum has never sat right with me. Mm-hmm. And if I was going to, uh, you know, put Channing Tatum on the list for this movie, I would probably just replace Steve Carell there. Sure. Um, which comes down to Eddie Redmayne and Benedict Cumberbatch, two people that are absolutely loved on the internet, except for, you know, Um, I think Benedict Cumberbatch is fine in that movie. I think that movie is fine. Eddie Redmayne's win, Eddie, the man can charm a room. I don't, I think even, like, Felicity Jones is the star of that movie, the impressive one in that movie. And she's Felicity 
Jones. Uh-huh. Like, uh, not to be She's a really good aeronaut. a jerk about it. She's a really good aeronaut. However, Eddie Redmayne winning the year of Julianne Moore, you get a Savage Grace reunion. You do. You which do. is uh, kind of funny. Yes. Uh, for the four of us who have seen Savage Grace. Right. Um, so what are we doing here? We're house down booting Eddie Redmayne. I, knew, I don't know what happened that would reek that. on the rest of uh, future Oscar seasons to come. Would well, mm, he's maybe not. I need he's, to rescind this because he's not what beating. If, no, he's not beating DiCaprio in the Revenant year. He's not. Yeah, doing well, it. that's that's what makes me afraid because if I take this away, does that mean no. that he wins for the Danish Girl? No, I don't think so. I don't think okay. anything. Then is I feel safe Leo doing that, that. I don't want yeah. to. You know course correct too far i like eddie redmayne in the theory of everything i think it's i think it's it's uninspiring biopic work but i think he's giving an incredibly committed performance in that i i get hives thinking about steve carell's performance at Foxcatcher. um <laughs> so that would be my choice but it's not my pick it is your pick so so you are well i just I in like really weighing the options here. I was trying to think of anything in the performance that like gave insight into the person, the character he was playing, motivation, etc. And I couldn't come up with anything. I feel like it is just a physical performance to me. Sure. But even on that level, I think it's more impressive than a couple of the other people in this category. But that's all I always say. So Ah, uh, again, this is your choice. This is your pick, and <laughs> you get it. So, all right, shall I move on? You shall. Okay. Clary, can I get one thing straight with you? I do not see plays because I can nap at home for free, and I don't see movies because they're trash and they got nothing but naked people in them. And I don't read books because if they're any good, they're gonna make them into a miniseries. You know, you would be a much more contented, pleasant person if you would find ways to occupy your time. I am pleasant? Damn it! I just saw drum eating in the morning at the Piggly Wiggly, and I smiled at the son of a bitch, for I could help myself. 1989. Best Supporting Actress. Uh, I am choosing somebody who is an Oscar winner by this point, and yet... I had a plethora of options for movies to choose from for her on this snub list. I am choosing Shirley MacLaine in the film Steel Magnolias, uh, who lost out on a nomination to her co-star, Julia Roberts, for incredibly um, understandable reasons. It is not a surprise that Julia Roberts' ascendant movie star, who wasn't in Pretty Woman yet, but like was already at least cast in that movie. So like there's she's she's on her way up. She also plays the character in Steel Magnolias who dies. So it's not a surprise that she's the nominee. I think if I'm choosing anybody from that stellar cast, and I know that like you have a different opinion on this and we'll get into that. Um, this is one of the things on the list, uh Gary's that we debated. We did provide pushback we, to each other. We about. did. We debated this one probably more so than any of the others. Um, I could have chosen Shirley MacLaine for Postcards from the Edge, but instead that year I went with Catherine O'Hara for Home Alone. I could have chosen her for In Her Shoes, but the In Her Shoes performance I went with instead was Cameron Diaz. Um, 
Shirley MacLaine, to me, is the funniest performance in Steel Magnolias, a movie that is remembered for being a weepy, but is also a deeply, deeply funny movie and would not be as beloved as it is if it wasn't a deeply funny movie. She has so many tremendously funny scenes. The scene where she's trying to corral her beast of a dog while she's yelling at Tom Skerritt is (laughs) tremendously funny. The... um, uh, I'm not crazy, Malin. I've just been in a bad mood for 35 years or whatever the the span of time was. Um, her reaction, the locker room scene, the locker room scene, the scene again, the scene that's remembered as Sally Field's big breakdown scene at the end is to me the scene where Olympia Dukakis hauls Shirley MacLaine in front of her and says, "Hannah, Malin," like that's the best part of that scene. Um, and and Shirley MacLaine as Weezer, Weezer Boudreau, uh, her reaction to that when she just goes, "You are a pig from hell!" Like that's, like that's the line. You know what I mean? Um, uh, the the oh, what's the line about? Uh, I've got enough culture. I don't see movies because. Um, there's just a whole bunch the of trash naked... filled with nothing but naked people in them, <laughs> and I don't <laughs> and I don't read books because if they're any good, they'll just turn them into a miniseries, and it's just it's oh, it's tremendous. Um, Weezer Boudreaux, the most annoying Twitter account you've ever <laughs> seen. Uh, that's just every opinion of all of the awful people on Twitter. Um, <laughs> it's just a tremendous performance, and I think she's she brings so much to that movie in terms of uh, uh, comedy and. I love watching Shirley MacLaine fully dialed in to something like that. And it's also a really committed physical performance too. Yes. Because that whole line she says while she has two little yes. mustache papers on there because she's getting her mustache yeah. waxed. Well, like I said, Eddie, um, every time she's walking that damn dog and she's just like barely holding on for dear life is so funny to me. Um, I just, she's, she's the perfect sort of like, terror of the neighborhood and yet you still find that you know little bit of humanity in her when she's sort of grilling uh anel um and then sort of about you know well are you married or aren't you you know that kind of thing and then she comes out at the end and she's just you know is surprisingly you know gracious to her and it's a wonderful character it's a wonderful performance um, you would have gone another way on on Silving the Way, so I want to give you a little bit of a moment to air your your your. Thoughts. I mean, I would have gone with Sally Field. I get it. I think it's a different category. I think you're, then you're talking about a lead. I love Sally Field in that movie. I love everybody in that movie. Um, I I get why. I think I value maybe what Shirley MacLaine brings to the movie a little bit more. Um, I feel like Sally Field achieves something in that movie that it's like, well. That's why nobody wants to really touch Steel Magnolias beyond community theater anymore. Because how do you do what Sally Field does in that movie? Unless, like, yeah. you just copy it. Right. In which case, you're just chasing what Sally Field is doing. But, like... Yeah. Uh, Did you see the I scene didn't... in Yellow Jackets this season? where, uh, Or, no, do you don't watch Yellow Jackets, do you? I, uh, my relationship with Showtime is always I fraught get it. I get and it. mysterious. Um. Uh, there's a there's a scene in Yellow Jackets this season where one of the characters does that monologue from uh, Steel Magnolias and it's kind of wonderful. Directly lifted. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like 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 they're like performing a monologue from a movie and so I've chosen as the they're eating one of the kids? <laughs> yes as they're picking. Really? No. <laughs> oh okay. 
Uh, no, not exactly. Um, but anyway, so the nominees that year, uh, Brenda Fricker wins for My Left Foot, a uh, tremendous win where uh, people always... I was talking about um, the fact that there are six Oscar winners in A Time to Kill when I was on the screen drafts, John Grisham draft. And the one that everybody forgets is is Brenda Fricker. Brenda Fricker is an Oscar winner for My Left Foot. Um, Angelica Houston and Lena Olin for Enemies, A Love Story, Julia Roberts for Steel Magnolias, and Diane Weist for Parenthood. So here's the thing is, have I seen Enemies, A Love Story? I know I've seen part of Enemies, A Love Story, but I don't know if I've even seen enough to remember exactly what goes down in that movie. And I don't necessarily love the idea of booting either Angelica Houston or Lena Olin, actresses who I love, from that movie because I have not, I genuinely don't think I've seen that movie, even though I know I've seen part of it. Um, Brenda Fricker, My Left Foot, is very good. And uh, I love that nomination for Diane Weist in Parenthood because it's sort of an unheralded role in that movie and i think she's really good i think i make the swap and swap out julia roberts in steel magnolias you do what i wanted to do with foxcatcher basically yes um i don't think she's bad in that movie i don't think she's oscar nomination worthy of that cast i put her behind mclean enfield and olympia dukakis and dolly parton and probably everybody but daryl hannah honestly uh, in that movie, I think she's you just... put Daryl Hannah dead last. Yeah, yeah, she's so funny. Is she? It's such a comedic transformation. I will say, her Anel fades from the the like yeah uh, point of view. Anel should stay that funny for the whole thing. Yeah. And maybe Daryl Hamlet doesn't, but I don't think I would maybe put her dead last. It's also so funny to me that Julia Roberts can't do a Southern accent, even though she's from Georgia. It's just very, very humorous to me. Um, Yeah, I think I do. The fact that Julia Roberts comes back the very next year and gets nominated for Pretty Woman is good enough for me. I don't think she needs the Steel Magnolias nomination as well. So uh, I am swapping out Steel Magnolias ladies in the year 1989. Chris, wow! Pitting women against each other. I know. Joe Reed, Cancel you are me. part of the problem. Cancel me. But what do you want now? You, my friend. What for? To conduct you. Where to? To the training center. Training for what? For another world. Okay, so I am uh, taking us back, back, back to the oldest entry on this entire list. Whoa! Whoa! Uh, so listen, I previously talked about a different Powell and Pressburger movie with Black Narcissus, and I'm talking about this, uh, one that I wanted to slot in somewhere, couldn't really figure out where I wanted to put it. Uh, it was A Matter of Life and Death from 1946, the Powell and Pressburger starring Kim Hunter and David Niven. This movie is fucking insane. Um... I you kind of watch it now and you're like how did they even make this back then how would they make it even today it's uh David Niven plays a 
fighter pilot who narrowly escapes death, meanwhile also falling in love with Kim Hunter. She is American, he is British. The movie is somewhat propaganda about, you know, uh, reuniting uh, British and American forces after, you know, or towards the end of the war, you know, as the, like, uh, you know, uh, resentment settle in or whatever. The movie was designed to like reunite Americans and uh, British soldiers. Sure. Uh, this, I believe, is the same year as The Best Years of Our Lives, which is like Masterpiece, one of the greatest movies ever made. Mm-hmm. Very sobering, uh, you know, domestic drama. This is the opposite. This is like <laughs> the movie that birthed Terry Gilliam and, uh, you know, almost like charlie kaufman-esque type of sure uh diversions into the afterlife where david niven's character basically stands trial in heaven uh for narrowly escaping death and uh all of this in america it was called stairway to heaven so there's some like you know confusing titles. Why? Because there is a literal stairway to heaven <laughs> in this movie, and I have decided to go with best art direction, color of 1946 for Powell and Pressburger's A Matter of Life and Death. The some of these sets in this movie, which like yeah, it, the this era of filmmaking where you have actual physical sets you have actual locations you have miniatures you have painted backdrops you have all of it working together to make this movie of this insane scale and uh taking place in the real world in the corporate real world uh, er, that's the same thing anyway (laughs) it's a lot of it is set in heaven and then it also feels like heaven on earth in these like lush forested areas the movie is crazy um I don't know how they made it then. They have these large-scale stairs that look somewhat like an escalator where they're fitting a whole ensemble on. There's a thing that looks like Pride Rock in this movie. (laughs) Um, Listen, Powell and Pressburger made some uh, crazy movies. Uh, This is one of the best of them. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to call out the sets for this movie it's nominated against the yearling which wins caesar and cleopatra and henry v you're gonna tell me that some cabins in the woods (laughs) are more impressive than uh a heavenscape where it's like all these soldiers show up to heaven and they get a bottle of coke and a bag of wings and uh you know kathleen byron is ushering them all to uh to the afterlife. Oh, you uh, don't mean like a bucket of chicken wings. You mean like angel wings. I get it. I get it. Oh, no. Like they get like a shrink wrapped bag of angel wings when they show up to heaven. Nice. And it's like you presumably have to take it out of the bag and put your wings on it. I was thinking like you show up to heaven and they hand you like, you know, a bucket of chicken wings and like a, a case of beer or something like that. And you're just like, welcome to heaven. Go take a seat on the Barca lounger. Um, it's kind of like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot that I could have called out for this movie. I mean, uh, pitting it against the best years of our lives did not seem any fun. Um <laughs> Yeah. And also, you know, a lot of their team would work on other movies, and I had talked about Black Narcissus previously, mm-hmm. and, like, this would be 
equally worthy for Jack Carter's cinematography, but he wins the Oscar for Black Narcissus. So sure. uh, to spread a little bit of the wealth and to uh, just really kind of call out the ingenuity and the bonkers, uh, you know, artful mindedness. Sure. Uh, of the design team, uh, this the sets were by Alfred Young. Uh, yeah, and I'm booting the winner, the yearling. Yeah, that makes sense. Get out of here, yearling. Fucking movies about fucking dogs. That was one of those movies. No, that... yearling is a the isn't is oh it... that's the deer. That's you're yeah. right. It's the deer. Never you're mind. thinking but, of old like, yeller. It's the same damn thing. Yeah, I saw that movie. Yeah. In, like, a middle school classroom where it's wheeled out on a TV, brackets derogatory. (laughs) When you mention Labyrinth, that's, like, brackets complimentary. Uh Uh-huh. Well, yeah. Okay, well, if we're we're already going there, uh, speaking of bonkers... Oh, shit, sorry. Of bonkers artful-mindedness, we are gonna go... Cut that out, cut that out. No, 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 it's fine. Sarah... Go back to your room. Play with your toys and your costumes. Forget about the baby. Speaking of bonkers artful-mindedness, though, we're going to 1986, and the film is Labyrinth. One of the first movies I remember watching sort of on my own, or like without... Without parental, like, mom and dad are, you know, watching a movie with us, right? Like, I remember watching that movie with my cousins on a sleepover and being fascinated by Labyrinth and by everything that I'm seeing, right? I've, um, my experience with Jim Henson by that point would have been Sesame Street and Fraggle Rock, right? You know what I mean? And all of a sudden, you go from that to Labyrinth, plus the fact that, like, I'm being introduced to David Bowie for the first time in my entire life. Um, What category I'm going for here is best costume design for uh, Ellis Flight and Brian Froud's work in Labyrinth. Now, when this one showed up on my long list, your comment, I believe, was... Is this just for David Bowie's uh, codpiece onesie, essentially, that he's wearing? It would be valid if it was. If you were just it throwing this nomination is. out there yeah. for David Bowie's codpiece in this movie, understandable. It's it's a codpiece in the in the guy in the in as part of this sort of one piece stretchy fabric jumpsuit thing that he's wearing and he also he has a cape and 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 whatnot but um and at some point he's wearing like riding pants like uh like uh equestrian uh garb um and i think he Makes also you think about really riding those pants. i mean kind of like of course like he's so weirdly sexual and so much of labyrinth is this idea that like jennifer connelly's character ends up mixed up in all this because she's so in love in this very sort of like tweenage teenage you know early teenage girl sense of like she's in love with the goblin king and like what does that mean to her when she's like playing make believe and dressing up in her princess dress and whatever and playing in the in the park or whatever playing at you know uh these sort of like goblin king <laughs> fantasies and then when she's confronted with it the sort of, you know, the terror of it, and he's this malevolent uh, trickster, right, who's trying to capture her in this labyrinth, and he's kidnapped her little brother, and 
Um, it's actually, it's a really good movie that like has sort of gone into the bin of like only eighties kids, you know, you know, love this kind of thing. And it's, um, it's such a childhood touchstone for people who were kids who were little kids in the eighties. And yet like now I feel like it's over merchandised to the point that that I'm like, I can't sure do this and yet when you think with labyrinth anymore but when you think about like the people who like were weaned on a movie like labyrinth it's like oh that's like no wonder my taste in movies is sort of all over the map um but yeah the costumes in labyrinth are incredibly memorable I think uh, I think just being able to outfit David Bowie and everything that they outfit him in this, but also Jennifer Connelly. Dare Connelly. we say iconic? Uh, dare we say iconic? Also Jennifer Connelly. She does have that princess dress uh, at a couple of different points, and when she's going through the labyrinth, her costume is like seventy five percent sleeves. Yes, it is, <laughs> which I also yeah. kind of love. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what exact uh, what the division of labor is when you are outfitting Muppets, um, but there's of course like a lot of a lot of different stuff uh, going on with the different uh, sort of puppet characters. Listen, in this I almost movie. did Fantastic Mr. Fox in costume design. I think that's legit. Yeah, you know. yeah. Um, it's a tremendous movie though, and I really love it. And I was glad to be able to. Toss it a nomination. Um, uh, what did I say? Ellis Flight, Brian Froud, and Polly Smith, I think, was also uh, on the costume team for that one. Anyway, 1986 in costume. Your winner that year is the Merchant Ivory film A Room with a View, which uh, costumes by Jenny Bevan and John Bright. Um, the Mission is nominated. Uh, Peggy Sue Got Married is nominated. And then two of the craziest movies that I didn't really know too much about uh, going into this. One is the Franco Zeffirelli Otello, which is essentially a filmed version of the opera, uh, Placido Domingo in full blackface uh, as as Othello in this movie. Um, And then Roman Polanski's Pirates, which is... I wonder what that's about. Uh, what, What's the plot of a movie called Pirates? What if Walter Matthau was like a full-on peg-leg pirate? Like, uh, is the... Was? Is, what if? <laughs> um, uh, Just watching the trailer for that movie makes my brain sort of like freak out. Like the idea of like Walt... <laughs> like essentially it's like it's Pirates of the Caribbean, but what if Walter Matthau was Captain Jack Sparrow? It's crazy. Um... So again, a lot of costumes going on in those two movies that I think are um, wild. Uh, obviously, Peggy Sue Got Married, uh, the Francis Ford Coppola movie, is wonderfully costumed. And A Room with a View, like all Merchant Ivory things, is, you know, looks impeccable. All those sort of, you know, sumptuous uh, going on vacation in, in Italy sort of uh, costumes. I love it. Um the Mission is a movie that I kind of stick up for a little bit, but I think the costumes in it are probably not in the top echelon of things I would nominate it for. I think it's got a great score. I think it's got, you know, great cinematography and all that. I probably wouldn't mention its costumes when talking about how much I like that movie. So I think The Mission gets the boot with the caveat that, like, it was really tempting to just be like, all right, all right blackface Othello, like, Get out of here. But look, just even looking at that from like the trailer, I was like, that's got, 
you know, uh, gowns, big, intricate, yeah, gown, beautiful gowns, beautiful uh, Shakespearean gowns. Yeah. So I think the mission being a movie that I have seen and being not too super blown away by the costumes, I think that's my choice. Have you seen either Otello or Pirates? No. Okay. <laughs> it's too bad. The mission I, sucks, though, so I'm fine with that. I like the mission okay. Um, but I think, I guess we both agree on the snubbery of it. So uh, where are you going from here, Christopher? What do you want? You. You want me? Is that what you're saying? You're my wife. So uh, we're staying into the crafts categories, a movie that I knew I had to get on my list and a artist I knew I had to get on my list. Um, We're talking best cinematography, 2004, uh, the late, great Harris Savitas' work for birth. How do you choose just one for Harris Savitas is the thing. Exactly. And, I, you know, uh, almost did Zodiac. I think in terms of, you know, this was a movie I wanted on my list for for sure. But the his work that I think is the most impressive, the one that really makes me feel like we missed so much, and uh, you know, from his career being cut short, uh, is Birth. There's so much with. Mm-hmm. The way that he captures the city of New York and a certain section of Manhattan that feels incredibly haunted. And obviously it's set during winter, so chilly, etc. But um, really setting the tone for this, you know, rather (laughs) morbidly interested movie. And then some of the shots are just like in, insane, incredible work, like pulling mm. off that uh, close up of Nicole Kidman at the uh, at the theater and the birthday cake shot with all those candles. Um, I mean, Harris Vitas has had so many other uh, movies that we've talked about, uh, but this one I think is pretty um this one i think stands at the top that means i'm not putting nicole kidman's performance in here even though i have spoken very effusively about it certainly yeah maybe we'll get into that at some future point who were your nominees that year here's the other thing (laughs) the best cinematography lineup in 2004 is kind of a booger lineup like you could make the case for all of these kind of making sense to be there in that it is a certain type of aughts gloss. Sure. It is The Aviator Wins, House of Flying Daggers, cool movie, looks incredible, Mm -hmm. Passion of the Christ, Phantom of the Opera, and a very long engagement. That's a lot of sameness blurring together. And honestly, if it weren't for House of Flying Daggers, I would probably Nicole Page Brooks this. But like House of Flying Daggers does not deserve that. I think the aviator looks very good. I don't know. I think the aviator looks very good. Even if that's sure, maybe not your, like, like I maybe wouldn't get rid of that. But like I'm not a huge av- sure. the aviator fan. Sure, sure, sure. Um. And it's just like you think about the things that could have maybe been nominated in 2004, like obviously Birth. Um, mm-hmm. Birth would probably be my winner of that year. 
Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Mm-hmm. Like, there's mm-hmm. a lot more interesting choices to yeah, be made I, and I a agree. lot more influential films and visual styles that could have been represented here yeah. that just aren't there. Um, I think even something like Ray kind of catapults, you know, that movie's iconography in an interesting way. Sure. Um, the, what am I going to boot, however? Yes. I mean, this kind of comes to a to what end type of question. <laughs> okay. Because it's kind of evil that the Passion of the Christ is, like, mm. made pretty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I agree. So I'm going to boot the Passion of the Christ. Not to, not just for the, like, simple reasons of, like, it is mm-hmm. a, a tool of destruction in the world, but also just, like, why does this need to look so glossy and, mm. like... Yes. Why do you need to make the fanciest snuff film ever made? Uh-huh. Like, I think, yes, I agree with you. I think the fact that both the Phantom of the Opera, the fact that Phantom of the Opera is skating by in this should feel very, very fortunate. Like, Phantom of the Opera is sort of tiptoeing past and hoping you don't notice. Um, I mean, it looks fine, but if a movie looked like that and it wasn't one of the most name- the most recognizable-named musicals in the world, would it get that nomination? It absolutely would not. It's also bold to call your um, ponderous costume drama a very long engagement. Like, you're really just asking for it at that point. Um, That movie is boring as hell. It's so boring! I remember sitting through it in the theater and waiting for the movie to begin. Yeah. Two hours into it. Like, the the major set piece of that movie is Jodie Foster speaking in French. And (laughs) Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but she's still talking about the value of American movies, even though she's speaking in French. It's kind of American funny. movies. Uh, uh, Cinémathèque américaine. Um, uh, yes, thank you, Jody. Um, yeah, good choice though. Birth cinematography. What have you done to it? What have you done to its eyes? Speaking of movies where the actress has an iconic pixie cut, however. I'm going to transport us to the year 1968. The the city, New York. The building, the Dakota. Uh, the devil, you betcha. Um, we are talking about Rosemary's Baby, uh, which should have been a Best Actress nomination for Mia Farrow in 1968. Mia Farrow has never been nominated for an Academy Award, which is kind of surprising considering her sort of uh, storied career in celebrated movies like Rosemary's Baby and Hannah and Her Sisters and and such. Uh, She was a BAFTA nominee that year. She was a Golden Globe nominee for Rosemary's Baby. She ultimately misses out on a rather iconic Oscar lineup, which we'll talk about in a second. But I want to talk about the performance, which is... Um, heightened horror perfection. I think she plays terror so well. Like, you talk about, like, the great scream queens or whatever. You know, your Jamie Lee Curtis's and, and uh, uh, Nev Campbell and Scream and whatnot. Um, Mia Farrow's 
over-the-top but just perfect reactions to so many things that are happening in Rosemary's Baby is really, really grabs you. The Obviously, the nightmare scene where she's raped by the devil, her reaction is so much a part of how crazy-making that scene feels, like, as it keeps going on and you're just sort of like you're trapped in there with her. Um, obviously her scene at the end of the movie that is clipped all the time, you know, what's wrong with its eyes? What have you done to its eyes? Um, but even the sort of quieter scenes where she's, you know, being manipulated by her husband and by Ruth Gordon and, uh, watching her sort of like steadily growing paranoia and, and terror. It's just a really tremendous movie and it's a tremendous, performance and it's one of those ones that like sticks has stuck with the culture you know what i mean for years and years mm-hmm. and years and the longer it goes the more you look back and you're just like wait a second was that really not nominated like you know ruth gordon obviously wins the oscar that year for rosemary's baby so like that was a movie that was definitely on the oscars radar and it's it's puzzling there was of course at the time, I did this 1968 Oscar race for Kevin Jacobson's uh, uh, podcast recently, and so sort of dug into the 1968 uh, Oscar year. And there was a lot of tabloidy stuff with like Mia Farrow's relationship with Frank Sinatra, and it was, you know, falling apart and all this. And did that impact negatively? He served her papers on set of the movie. Yeah, did that impact? Uh, negatively her her chances for a nomination. Sometimes that kind of stuff helps, right? Sometimes that kind of stuff gives you a little bit of sympathy within the industry. And uh, in this case, it didn't. Um, the nominees this year. So this was the famous tie. It's a tie. Ingrid Bergman, delightful hand to her face. Um, Barbara Streisand and Catherine Hepburn both tie for Best Actress. Streisand for Funny Girl, Catherine Hepburn for The Lion in Winter, or Lion in the Winter, as uh, Ingrid Bergman famously said. Lion in the Winter. Two tremendous performances. The other nominees were, and I've watched this clip a billion times, so I can probably recite them from memory, but it's Patricia Neal in The Subject Was Roses, Vanessa Redgrave in Isadora, Joanne Woodward for Rachel Rachel. So um, I did... This year for, uh, and the runner up is, and I was able to watch for the first time both Rachel Rachel and Isadora. I had seen the other three movies, uh, already. Joanne Woodward and Rachel Rachel so good. Have you seen that movie, Chris? I'm going. I'm going to watch it. This was my thing when the last movie stars was on. Yeah. I was like, why are not all of the fucking Joanne Woodward movies immediately right here? Um, yeah. Rachel Rachel is currently available, so I'm going to. It's such a good movie. Her performance is so good. I was so 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 happy to uh, sort of have that movie in my life now. It's really tremendous. I had also sort of, I'd watched The Last Movie Stars and thought, like, I have not seen nearly enough Joanne Woodward movies, just in general. So um, I was glad I was able to add that one. Um, Patricia Neal is good in The Subject Was Roses, a movie that feels very, very much like a stage adaptation, which it was. Um, Patricia Neal was sort of coming back from having had a stroke in her real life, so there was a lot of um, uh, sentiment on her side, but she's also quite good in The Subject Was Roses. And then Vanessa Redgrave in Isadora, who, this is not a bad performance. She's actually pretty good. Uh, Isadora's a weird movie and um easily i think the least of these five movies and i think while 
in a vacuum, I'm like, yeah, that's a fine nomination for Vanessa Redgrave. She's playing Isadora Duncan. She um, is, you know, this, you know, fiercely committed artist and, and uh, ultimately uh, sympathizer of the early communist movement in Russia and all this sort of stuff. Stacked up against Mia Farrow and Rosemary's Baby, it's kind of no contest. So um, I think I nudge out Vanessa and move in Mia Farrow for Rosemary's Baby. Aries who love uh, listening to long episodes of Joe Reed, go back and listen to that episode of In the Runner. Oh, it was we had a we had a leisurely long conversation, but it was really really fun, and I loved uh, (laughs) I loved every minute of it. So that was super fun. Uh, Chris, anything to say about Mia Farrow before we move on? Mia Farrow in this movie. Tremendous performance. All right. What do you have next? Belongs on this list. Then I start the menopause and the lump got bigger from the hormones. It started to grow. So I go to the doctor and he did the biopsy. And inside the lump, he found teeth and a spinal column. Yes, inside the lump was my twin. Oh. Spanikopita! You hungry? <laughs> I love Hard pivot. Yeah. Though you mentioned Ruth Gordon's amazing performance in Rosemary's Baby. This is somehow an even more satanic <laughs> twin to that performance. You say twin, huh? Twins. Yeah. Uh, Best Supporting Actress, 2002. I'm calling it for Andrea Martin in my Big Fat Greek Wedding. She'll make lamb. That's, you know, she'll make you lamb. She will make lamb. Uh, Tati, they look Greek. Or Taki, they look Greek. Um, <laughs> that's that's what uh, the Blair Witch left for uh, Heather. It was Andrea Barton's twin. That's what was it, wrapped was up in the flannel. And hair and a spinal, and a spinal column. column. Yeah. Oh, my God. Andrea Martin's so funny in this movie. It is very strange to me yes. that nobody materialized as just a supporting contender for that movie. I mean, you have obviously Andrea Martin, who I think it should be. Yeah. But also both of the parents as well could have shown up. It's just, it's the type yeah. of movie that they're, you know, and in these comedies, these movies that are hits and ensemble movies that there normally yeah. is a supporting player in there. Andrea Martin is a fucking living legend. Andrea Martin not having an Oscar nomination when it's like, it could have happened for my Big Fat Greek Wedding when it's like, yeah, listen, I think 50% of that movie's box office gross is owed to uh, Andrea Martin in that movie. Um, I mean, obviously the other 50% goes to Neo Vardalos and, you know, they can work together to make sure that all of the uh, people uh everyone involved in the movie gets their fair share uh we are pro union on this podcast. <laughs> uh pro union talking about the writer strike when it's like well Nia Vardalos wrote that movie so she's going to get her cut anyway 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 um Andrea but Martin is so good in that movie it's such the, a it was such a huge hit it was a big enough hit that it got a she gets probably the top 3 biggest laughs in the movie too and it's a big enough hit where it gets essentially a screenplay nomination based on public acclaim. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, and because people were not kind to that screenplay critics, nomination. Critics Everybody not was care looking for that down movie. their damn nose at it. And if you are of the opinion that that script and that movie as conceived is a little basic or, you know, whatever, I think even 
of that opinion, it's easy to see Andrea Martin sort of transcending all of that with just this. I mean, that's what you go to Andrea Martin for, right? This deeply committed, mm-hmm. um, the, the scene where, or no, wait, I'm thinking of Lainey Kazan. It's Lainey Kazan who does the, she can't pronounce bunt, right? She keeps going, a bon. <laughs> Lainey Kazan in that scene is so funny because like, she's just putting on this, like, I am an ethereal, gifted, uh, huh. uh, bastion of benevolence in that scene and she's like oh hello uh, <laughs> to, to her daughter's future in-law oh it's and, a cake yeah thank um, you <laughs> and then uh, walks away immediately drops it there's a hole in this cake like, <laughs> but no um, it's andrea martin has the uh what does he what do you mean you don't eat meat uh uh it's tell me what to say but don't tell me what to say <laughs> she's so she, good Andrea Martin, uh, just like top yeah. tier comedian, yeah, yeah it's giving great. you these massive laughs in this movie. Is it broad? Yes. Have broader and like bad performances been nominated for Oscars? Yes, yes. absolutely. I have no room for the snobbery. Um, again, bringing up an iconic lineup. Not only is Best Actress Indeed. in 2002 a top tier, but so is Supporting Actress as well. Catherine wins for Chicago. Catherine. Kathy Bates for About Schmidt. Queen Latifah for Chicago. Julianne Moore for The Hours. And Meryl Streep for Adaptation. So... Where do you do? It's a, kind of an obvious choice for me, and it's Kathy Bates for About Schmidt. Like... Yeah. I love Kathy Bates so much, so I don't want to boot Kathy Bates here. But but there was like kind of a backhandedness to the appreciation there was. of that. There definitely performance was. where it's just like, oh, She's well, so she gets brave. bravery points. Yeah. And it's like, well, no. Like I don't right. know. It, it we love Kathy Bates. I don't think she's bad in the movie. I think that you know, there's just no way that I'm booting anybody else in this lineup. I think you're right. There's, you know, she's she's naked in the hot tub scene in that movie, and everybody sort of um, rushed to, again, I think you're right, backhandedly compliment the bravery of that all. And it's like, she's a human being with a body? Like, congratulations. You know what I mean? Like, doing. Ex- um, I mean, like, and it's also maybe the movie is also poking fun at her too in a way that i don't sure, like sure that you know i think Kathy anything, Bates always like, shows well i up. guess you were brave to do that in a movie that is not on your side sure sure you do yeah. that you know um i think kathy bates shows up to work uh, as always and but i think i think given the competition there's something to me about the category fraud of julianne moore but i still think it's such a good performance that it's not like i'm going to punish something from the hours um, right. for for that. Where are you taking us? You'd better tell the captain. We've got to land as soon as we can. This woman has to be gotten to a hospital. A hospital? What is it? It's a big building with patients, but that's not important right now. Let's take a trip by uh, via air line for the best original screenplay category of 1980. Uh, we're sticking with the comedy should get more credit theme of the last pick and i am going with 
Best Original Screenplay for the trio of Jim Abrahams and David Zucker and Jerry Zucker for the movie Airplane, which is, to me, a perfect comedy script in that it is wall-to-wall jokes. And it's not, they're not, this is not a vibe movie. This is not a hangout comedy. This is not an Apatovian sort of, uh, um, you know, put Paul Rudd and Seth Rogen in a scene and just let them riff off of each other, right? These are jokes on a page, like set up punchline, Back to back to back to back, right? The the ones that are that are so famous, right? You know, don't call me Shirley, and and um, but there's just the more absurdist stuff with you know. That's when I uh, started having my drinking problem, and what's a drinking problem? He you know can't he, he can't <laughs> get the drink to his mouth. He like puts the drink in his eye and whatnot. Um, uh, just so many the. <laughs> The different, you know, all the different passengers with their, you know, their each little thing. And Julie Haggerty's got like 8 billion good jokes. And then on the ground, right, uh, uh, you know, Johnny, what do you make of this? And well, I can make a brooch and I can make a pterodactyl. And, you know, it's just like, it's again, it just does not give you uh, time to take your breath. Uh, even from the very beginning, they show up to the airport and it's like the airport intercom is having that argument about like, um, the white zone has always been for loading and unloading. And then it escalates to like, I know what this is about. You want me to have an abortion. Like, uh, it's, uh, it's a movie that I watched when I was in high school and ended up, it was like that movie for me in high school or like I quoted it all the time. I was like that obnoxious, you know, uh, <laughs> kid, but it's so fucking funny and it's so, you know, well-written and so dumb and f- like perfect dumb comedy. And back in the day it was nominated for, you know, BAFTA, right? And and the Writers Guild. And it did get its share of attention in a way that you wouldn't necessarily think as the years went on, sort of these like spoof movies, right? It's it's you you don't think of a movie like Hot Shots, right, as a something that would be a BAFTA nominee or would be a Writers Guild nominee. And part of that is a testament to how good Airplane is within its genre. It's also a testament to maybe that movies like that were given a little bit more respect back then but like whatever was the case it's so correct right that this movie to me is is nominated what is your experience with airplane did you watch airplane when you were younger did you not come we've to watched it later? airplane together um i do, i do like airplane this is one of the uh options that we talked over and you make a good case for it um i also think the nominees in this category make a good case for it because it's just not an exciting lineup. Um, I also think it belongs in original, um, as you've chosen, instead of adapted, because it's like, well, yes, you could kind of say as a spoof of the airport movies that it's adapted. However, Airplane is Airplane. It was, that's right, because its Writer's Guild nomination was in Adapted, which, like... But I also think like I think this that's is its silly. own. It's a spoof, but it's its own yes. thing. Yes. It's not even like Mel Brooks spoofs that are so directly sure. associated to that. Airplane is like 
it's a genre second sketches constantly right in the framework of this is what we're making fun of right but like it's not directly pulling airport references right you know right exactly exactly right um you're right those nominees though oh gosh so uh original screenplay in 1980 uh, bo goldman wins for the script for melvin and howard other nominees are christopher gore for fame nancy myers harvey miller and charles shire for private benjamin wd richter and arthur a ross for a movie called brubaker and jean growl oh god help me with my french pronunciation Grouts for uh monocle de Merique, essentially my american uncle um uh, I've only seen of these movies. Well, I've not seen Brubaker and I've not seen My American Uncle. And I don't want to boot any of the other ones is the problem. Um, I'm certainly not booting Private Benjamin, the for both for the movie that it is and for the fact that it's Nancy Myers and Charles Shire writing together. Um, I didn't love Melvin and Howard. I like Melvin and Howard. I think Melvin and Howard's a good movie. Um, and not an exciting screenplay winner, though, to me. Maybe not as a winner, but like, I think as a nominee, I think it's at least fine. Um, Fame is an interesting nominee for screenplay, even though I love everything about Fame, so I'm definitely not getting rid of it. Um, even though it's a long movie and it's a little bit of a meandering movie, but I love, like I said, pretty much everything about Fame, so I'm not getting rid of it. So we're stuck with the two movies that I haven't seen, and I don't necessarily like to boot things from a movie that i haven't seen but i'm kind of up against the wall i did not have time to watch boot the sports movie (laughs) wait which one's the sports movie isn't brubaker a sports movie no he's a prison warden oh it's robert redford uh robert redford plays a prison warden um morgan freeman is in this movie a very early morgan freeman movie making this a pre uh an unfinished life uh movie um but so my american uncle is uh a gerard depardieu starring movie that again i haven't seen so what am i to do here i think Bru- i looked up the reviews and brubaker got a negative ebert review so i'm maybe going to go with ebert there and um and boot the brubaker which just watching from the trailer seems a little bit cliched which like is a shallow way of of doing this and again if i had more time i would have Tried to All the watch Brubaker fans can yell at us. I know, it. come at me, Brubaker fans. Um, uh, but you know who was having a pretty good year in 1980 was Robert Redford, who would win uh, best director and best picture that year for Ordinary People. So uh, I think Redford can take the snub for one of his movies in this case. So uh, booting Brubaker and slotting in zaz uh zucker abrahams and zucker for airplane even though i think at least one of them has become obnoxiously right-wing in the years since then but i'm not going to dig into that too much um airplane great screenplay chris oh my god joe someone's yelling in the basement we need to run downstairs (laughs) to the basement where are these hands coming from Ah! wait who's that in the corner i recognize those handprints as our beloved guest richard lawson's handprints So why don't we take a call from Richard? Hello, Joe and Chris. Happy Snubs Month. This is Richard Lawson calling in to address one of the most egregious oversights in recent Academy history. Let's travel back to 2011 when, for inexplicable reasons, Kate Hudson was completely overlooked for her masterful turn 
in the decidedly unmasterful romantic comedy Something Borrowed. It's a great feat to wrestle an interesting, nuanced performance out of a movie that is anything but. Hudson manages just that, turning a bitchy best friend role into something of substance, both amusingly awful and, in the end, strangely sympathetic. The scene in which her character finds out that her fiancé and her best friend have been sleeping together behind her back is Hudson at her best, a flurry of anger and hurt that presents a full human being rather than just a mere trope. And the last scene of the film, a wistful goodbye or a wary hello, depending on how you look at it, beautifully reminds us of all the nonverbal wonder of Hudson's performance in Joe's beloved Almost Famous. Had I been in critics group at the time, I would have voted for her in every round, uh, and I would have almost assuredly been the only one. But it wasn't meant to be. If I could go back in time, though, and take one of the nominated actresses out of the supporting category and put Hudson in, who would it be? Obviously, Octavia Spencer won for the help. Jessica Chastain was nominated for the help as well. Maybe my favorite performance of hers still to date. Uh, You had Janet McTeer for the documentary Albert Knobs, Melissa McCarthy, a rare comedy nomination for Bridesmaids. I wouldn't take that away. So what does that leave us with? Berenice Bejeau in The Artist, a movie that, to be honest, I have never seen and probably will at this point out of principle never see. And we all know if I haven't seen it, it doesn't exist. So it's very easy to take Bejeau out, put Hudson in. That's how it should have been. Maybe if we ever have a time machine, we can correct this great wrong. Anyway, thank you for asking me to contribute. I can't wait to hear more of your snubs and your listener snubs. Uh, It's a very exciting month for us all. Thanks. I was going to be so upset if it was anything else. (laughs) Yeah. True to brand, true to uh, claims he has made before. Um, I need to catch up to this performance. He's he's absolutely right about it. Like it's, um, I think it's an underrated rom com mostly because of her performance in it. Like I think she's really she's really good. But it's one of those uh, performances and movies where I think of Richard specifically when I think of that movie because he's been so um, forthright in his love for that movie. And I love movies like that where a a critic, you know, supports something to the point where, like, I I find them synonymous with that movie. Um, I like that Richard and I both agree on booting Berenice Bejeau. I mentioned it when I got uh, when I uh, slotted in Jason with Cameron for Margaret. So clearly, we are on the correct. We wavelength. we allow we allow overlap uh, with the guests. That's yes. right. That's right. Um, thank you, Richard, for uh, that submission. That was fantastic. All right, Chris. Wait. I feel like we could come up with a sizable list of Oscar history where there are supporting performances nominated in shitty rom-coms. And even, like, shitty rom-coms, like A Touch of Class being nominated for Best Picture. There you like, go. Yeah. So, the Academy has done. If anybody wants to ter- upturn their nose at a rom-com come at us. the Academy has done worse. Exactly. All right. Where are we going next, Chris? Why you want this person dead? Confer. Raison privé. This person harm you? Others in my family. I will give you something to protect you and your family from this person. I want him dead. Mon élément. So we are going uh, 
backwards to the 90s for a movie that is appreciated much more now uh, than I think. I mean, it was appreciated at the time. And, I think uh, it was. Somewhat came away, uh, faded away, and then came back strongly. I want to talk about Best Director in 1997, and I want to call out Casey Lemons for Eve's Bayou. In the movie, it is set in the South. It is very gothic. It is Journey Smollett witnesses her father having an affair, and it kind of unravels her, not unravels, but like it is an awakening to, of awareness to both her family and uh, the world that she is in and somewhat to her imagination of this affair. And uh, Casey Lemons, I think, is one of the directorial debuts of the 90s one of the big ones that uh you know when she came back in recent years i think we were hopeful would have the same power and that she's you know maybe moved towards like uh more like broader um sure movies that are just you know meant for wider audiences and this is such a specific uh you know version of this like type of coming of age story that is so rapturous all of the performances are amazing you have fucking lynn whitfield who is just like yeah goddess on screen uh one of the best child performances uh from journey smollett um Mm -hmm. and uh also debbie morgan is great and i mean it it's also still stands that uh, a black woman has never been nominated for best director she is obviously someone who would have been a worthy person all the way back in the 90s and yeah. certainly one of the celebrated debut uh filmmakers of the 90s as well because like she wins the first feature prize at Indie Spirits, National Court of Review calls her out. It was a Sundance movie. It's not like this movie didn't happen. Her version of the movie wasn't what made it to theaters, and now it's available in uh, uh, in her director's cut. And I think, yeah. you know, it's one of those movies that we give more of its due now than we did at the time. And you can somewhat see you know it's also happening in the juggernaut year of titanic too which kind of swallows yeah, everything also that is la confidential yes. yeah um it's also my sworn duty to mention that debbie morgan uh celebrated star of all my children one of the like most popular uh characters on all my children kind of ever so and, well uh, i was i I debated where to place this as a snub and i thought about debbie morgan's performance because she's yeah. phenomenal um yeah. And kind of in a in a surprising way, the standout of the movie, as far as you know, where it takes you um, in an unexpected way. Yeah. Um, so obviously, James Cameron wins. Nominees yes. are also Peter Cataneo for The Full Monty, Adam McGoyan for The Sweet Hereafter, Curtis Hansen for L.A. Confidential, and Gus Van Sant for Goodwill Hunting. I think it's Cataneo. I think going by the way Sigourney Weaver pronounced it when she had announced. Well, I mean, I think, the, the infallible Sigourney Weaver. I think she was the one who announced the Oscar nominees that year, I'm pretty sure. Anyway. This is also, you have two? Two? No, just the one. Just Adam McGoyan is the lone director, director nominee right. instead of As Good As It Gets for yes. James L. Brooks. Yes. Um, I think it's a good category that year. I think it's a strong category. It's a pretty strong category. I don't love the idea of 
booting the full Monty here. Sure. I don't, I, you know, comedy nominations, especially in I know. directing, I love. However, I feel like booting any of the others feels incorrect at the same time. So I think I have to boot the full Monty. I think that's ultimately where I would go to. I like, I love I LA love Confidential. The full as much as I should. Yeah. I think The Sweet Hereafter is a great nomination. I'm glad Adam McGoyan has that. And I am a, a pro Goodwill hunting person. So I'm pro Gus Van Sant, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. But Casey Lemons, I would love to see, you know, not to dog any of the like biopics that she's done, I would love to see something as personal as this movie is, yes. as, you know, unique as of its own point of view as this. Yes. I agree. Tell her they're not all that impressed with conversation. Two gentlemen avoid it when they can. But they don't in swoon and fawn on a lady who's withdrawn. It's she who holds her tongue who gets a man. Come on, you poor unfortunate soul. Go ahead. Make your choice. I'm a very busy woman and I haven't got all day. It won't cost much. Just your boy. I'd never put two and two together. I'm glad you're doing this. Well, okay, so 1989, obviously the, like, big sensation in the animated field that year was The Little Mermaid. Uh, Disney's big comeback movie, the Disney Renaissance, sort of begins again with The Little Mermaid. Uh, there is no animated feature category that year, but it certainly would have taken that one in a walk. Um we hadn't quite gotten to the point of animated movies being nominated in Best Picture. That would happen with the next Disney movie with Beauty and the Beast. But The Little Mermaid was acclaimed on that level. So it would begin the period of dominance of Disney over the original song category, which would happen basically throughout the 1990s. And uh, nominated twice in that category that year for Under the Sea, which ends up winning, and Kiss the Girl, which is... A fine song. Not even part of your world. (laughs) That's the thing. The two best... Well, no, Under the Sea is legitimately tremendous. Like, I have no quarrel with that whatsoever. Um, But yeah, part of your world could have been my choice for snub, but I'm not even choosing that one because even more egregiously snubbed that year is Poor Unfortunate Souls. The villainous anthem performed by Pat Carroll... Uh, written as the other songs were by uh, Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. Um, It's the best song from that movie. (laughs) It's the best song from, I think, any Disney movie. It It is is the best song ever sung by a villain. It's the platonic ideal of the villain song in a movie. Like, it's so delicious it's so i mean people uh, it, this this song and the character of ursula has been sort of like claimed by uh, queer audiences in the decades since that movie as we've sort of we've we've claimed ursula as our own which is like which is true in that like a lot of disney villains she was queer coded right the haircut and the the husky voice and the sort of um She's not sexual with Ariel, but she's sort of like, um, she's too slutty to be contained. Yeah. Um, she's got two circuit gays as her minions. One million percent. Um, 
uh, one million percent true. I still I'm on board with uh, Bo and Yang and Matt Rogers on Les Culturistas. Who, <laughs> I think uh, made, it should have been the Cock Destroyers. Neither. <laughs> Fine, fine, uh, true. Flotsam and Jetsam, uh, iconic uh, gay acolytes. But yeah, um, justly uh, reclaimed by queer audiences, but also it's just so delicious. I have performed this song at karaoke a plenty. I have done this, and like it's my favorite song to sing at karaoke of anything. It's so much fun to do. Um, so you're saying you admit that in the karaoke past you've been a nasty? I've been a nasty. Yeah, 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 yeah. They weren't kidding when they called me Willow Witch. Um, yeah, it's it's so much fun. It's again brief but impactful, and I think it's head and shoulders above everything else. So the Do question: you think Melissa McCarthy will uh, be at Sherry Renee Scott's level? <laughs> where where do you think this is going to fall? I think it's a thankless task, right? I think, I think like what are you wants this? Like I don't want to dog no, it. Like I think there's right. so many people involved with this movie that I'm like I don't want to dog on this, but why are we still here? This should have died in the pandemic. COVID well, this is, should have yeah. taken away the Disney live action remake. This is in this, no one wants this. It's the fact that a bunch million of million dollars. The fact that a bunch of dumb racists jump on, jumped on this movie as their, uh, you know, bet noir and uh, decided that this movie was endemic of all of the awful things that wokeness was doing to whatever has put the rest of us in a position where we're like, like, y'all are wrong and y'all are stupid and and whatnot. And yet at the same time, we look at the like trailers for this movie and you're like, and yet it just looks bad. It just looks like, you know, and 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 there's no real reason to be doing these live action remakes. And yet and I'm just I almost tired of looking at a movie and being like this is this exists for no reason other than being a printing press for money. And yeah. Which anyway, was the anyway, anyway, the, anyway. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, anyway. All right. So, anyway, the nominees in 1989. So, like I said, Under the Sea wins. Kiss the Girl is also nominated. Part of me feels like maybe doing the um the steel magnolias thing and just swapping out kiss the girls for poor unfortunate souls because poor unfortunate souls is so much better than kiss the girls and like or kiss the girl rather um then yeah this is anyway. not james patterson <laughs> no uh ashley judd singing the theme song from kiss the girls yeah. um the other nominees that year uh after all from the movie chances are which is performed by uh, Cher and Peter Cetera. There's no fucking not on your I'm getting fucking rid of that life. Song. Is Joe Reed not going to boot that song? On your life, another song I have performed at karaoke and had the best time uh, doing. Um, the girl who used to be me from Shirley Valentine, which is a movie I have finally acquired but still haven't watched yet. Um, I'm I know kind of I'm dying love to this movie, but I need to watch it. So I've listened to the song as performed by Patty Austin and like. It name checks the character of Shirley Valentine in the first lyric in the first line of this song. So immediately <laughs> like I was Alfie. like sold. Uh it's also uh, uh music by Marvin Hamlish and lyrics by Alan and Marilyn Bergman, which were the team that did The Way We Were. Uh sure. that wrote The Way We Were. Sure. So like I'm not getting rid of the girl who used to be me from Shirley Valentine. Uh so The Girl Who left... Used to Be Me sounds like the AI version of I've Never Been to Me. Also, just looking at Everything that I've learned about Shirley Valentine with still not seeing it yet, it is a little Mrs. Harris goes to Mykonos a little bit. Right. Like it's, it's, you know, that sort of seems to be the plot of that, which God bless. So 
who's left in this category but our old pal Randy Newman, uh, who is nominated this year for I Love to See You Smile from Parenthood, which is a song that feels like has always existed in TV commercials and has never not existed in TV commercials. And like almost everything else that Randy Newman has been nominated for in the last maybe 20 years, uh, at least, feels like, even though this came before you have, you've got a friend in me from Toy Story, still feels like a knockoff of you've got a friend in me, even though it came beforehand. Um, everything else that Randy Newman sort of has done recently that has been nominated feels like, oh, it's just, it's, you've got a friend in me. We, we, we would have, uh, been so much better off had that song just won when it could have. You know what I mean? Um, so I think I'm getting rid of, I love to see you smile, which is kind of a trite, twee little song anyway, right? Sure. Where would you go here? I'd, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. It's tempting to get rid of Randy Newman simply because, you know, there's a lot of bad will that I like poking the bear at for people with all of his Oscar nominations. But, sure. like, that is, for better or worse, one of his more iconic nominations. It is. I don't know. I would probably go with a, with a like, wealth-spreading replacement of Kiss the Girl. Yeah. I just think if you're going to give a movie three song nominations, The Little Mermaid isn't a bad one to do. Sure. You know what I mean? But and still not nominate part of your world. And not have part of your world. I know. That's, it's that's crazy. The thing. That's it's the crazy. Thing. It's crazy. All right. Uh, moving on, what is your next selection? So, what happened? Were you bored in Manchester? Was I bored? No, I wasn't fucking bored. I'm never bored. That's a trouble with everybody. You're all so bored. You've had nature explained to you, and you're bored with it. You've had the living body explained to you, and you're bored with it. You've had the universe explained to you, and you're bored with it. So now you just want cheap thrills and, like, plenty of them, and it doesn't matter how tawdry or vacuous they are, as long as it's new, as long as it's new, as long as it flashes and fucking bleeps in 40 fucking different colours, or whatever else you can say about me. I'm not fucking bored. Okay, so we are going back to another acting race. I feel like I've done too many performances. No, you're fine. This is one that I felt strong about. Uh, that really was like never in wavering of coming off this list. Um, uh-huh. Best actor, 1994. Uh, a lot, there are a lot of uh, Mike Lee performances I wanted to get on this list. There was, I probably had in my first draft uh, well over 100 uh, potentials. I probably had close to 10 like Mike Lee people I wanted in. But I want David Thewlis for Naked on this list. You know, when people talk about like Mike Lee now, we think of these like happy-go-lucky, another year, these kind of winsome Mm -hmm. movies, or you think about these like behemoth period pieces like uh, Peterloo, Vera Drake, Topsy Topsy Turvey, Mr. Turner. Naked is... Not so much of an anomaly of his earlier work, but like one that, you know, I think his fans talk about a lot because it's a really powerful movie, uh, but it's deeply unpleasant. Yeah. Uh, David Thewlis is basically playing this like kind of ne'er do well miscreant who you are constantly questioning your allegiance to watching because he does behave 
badly, but then also because it's a Mike Lee movie, you see his place within a certain system. And David Thewlis is just absolutely fucking tremendous. It's that Mike Lee thing of creating a reality that is so believable and creating a person from like their feet up their entire solar plexus and who they are and this is obviously a very troubled man and like down to the last shot of this movie it's a performance that keeps you very very much on edge and you can see why the academy would be like absolutely not (laughs) to this even though this movie you know There was a critical rallying around, especially this performance. You know, he wins New York Critics National Society. The it all began in Cannes. He was a Cannes winner, and this is also someone who has otherwise never really gotten their due. Um, that to the point where it's like if he got an opportunity to have a role like this again, and people were reminded that the performance in Naked still exists, uh, I think. Yeah, You know, you could have a real uh, potential for someone to just kind of run a season um, just because we forget we take for granted how good he is. And I would love to see him with Mike Lee again. Uh, this is the first Tom Hanks Oscar year. This is when Tom Hanks wins for Philadelphia. The other nominees are Daniel Day-Lewis in The Name of the Father, Lawrence Fishburne, What's Love Got to Do With It, Anthony Hopkins in The Remains of the Day, and Liam Neeson in Schindler's List. I would go so far as to say uh, David Thewlis is kind of heads and shoulders over all of these really great performances. I was going to say it's a good lineup. It is a good lineup to the point where I feel like I'm probably picking on what my boot options would be, and that would be down to Daniel Day-Lewis and Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson, who... It's not a showy performance, and it's like it's a performance that kind of steps up when it has to and still doesn't quite get there, and with a purpose to that. You know, it's not... He's not playing someone who is... who functions well as a hero and communicates well as a Mm -hmm. hero. And I Mm -hmm. think the limitations of that are, you know, intrinsic to the performance. So I don't want to always pick on it, but I, and I also don't, you know, you boot that and Liam Neeson has no Oscar nomination. Right. Right. Um, But then you also have Daniel Day Lewis, who I actually think is really good. And I think he's elevating that movie in the name of the father, but it's also like one of the Daniel day Lewis performances. We never talk about, (laughs) um, certainly among his nominated performances. And it's, there's clearly a lot of passion behind it and a lot of national passion, uh, in the making of this movie. It's a Jim Sheridan movie, but you know, it's, it's about as straightforward of a Daniel day Lewis performance you will ever see. Mm -hmm. So it's also like, are you judging it against his career or just for the performance? Yeah. And I mean, the man has three Oscars. I'll take it away from Daniel day Lewis. Sure. Yeah. I think I agree with that one. I think the sentimental reasons to keep Liam Neeson. He's great in the movie. He's great in the movie. Yeah. Their skin changes colors. That's why we couldn't see him that night. Tell me something, Morgan, in this book of yours. They haven't a detail what would happen if they were hostile. Yes. 
said they would probably invade. I'm doing a cinematography nomination, another cinematography nomination, even after I have admitted in previous episodes that I do sometimes struggle between uh, differentiating cinematography and directing. <laughs> I, I pledge to to learn and grow and and all of that good stuff. I am uh, nominating from uh, 2002 uh, Tak Fujimoto for Best Cinematography for Signs. The thing about Tak Fujimoto as a cinematographer is he's never been nominated for an Oscar, even though he has wow. done cinematography for such films as, oh, The Silence of the Lambs and The Sixth Sense and Badlands, which is his first cinematography credit. He shares it with two other people, but... um. Uh, began his career as an assistant to the great cinematographer Haskell Wexler, like such a fantastic pedigree. And um, the the cinematography in Signs is so fucking striking, right? Like uh, the obviously the exterior shots with like the cornfields and and whatnot, but like all this stuff that's happening. <laughs> inside that house right the you know the way that certain you know things come into focus in that house the the water glasses all over and the the different sort of portents uh, Joaquin Phoenix you know hold up in that closet watching <laughs> watching you know the TV and uh, the scene where Mel Gibson goes into um, I guess it's the house of the M. Night Shyamalan character, right? It's after he leaves, mm-hmm. and that's where he, fi- he finds the alien in there. And everything feels so perfect, right? Like, everything... That's where uh, I think the kind of... The, the Hitchcockian comparisons that this movie sort of drew come to is everything looks pristine and beautiful, and yet lurking behind all of this is, you know these aliens who are going to sort of like change everything. Right. And I'm just mesmerized by the sort of the, the temperature and the tone of these shots, these very sort of golden Midwestern Mm -hmm. (laughs) shots into which these alien invaders are coming. And there's some great nighttime cinematography going on uh, in some of the earlier scenes. And, um, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. And there's I a certain visual quality to it too that it feels like it's a movie that could have existed in like any type of any decade yes. <laughs> ahead of it. Like it could have been a Capra movie or something. Yes, I think Fujimoto brings to the movie, which is a great, um, a great tandem with M Night Shyamalan. Right, like he's a, a great Norman Rockwell esque quality. He's a great of fit. Americana that's yes. brought to the movie. Yeah. Um. It's just it it blows my mind that Fujimoto's never been nominated uh, given I mean how do you nominate the Silence of the Lambs for all the Oscars that you do and not give anything to the cinematography that movie looks mm-hmm. so like the dread of that movie is so much in in you know the the lighting and the and the the dread of it all anyway the um, way that he shoots that movie too is so incredibly disarming every time that you watch it mm-hmm. in a way that Still, I think it's under-discussed even in terms of Demi. Like, we talk about the Demi close-ups. You know? Yes. But even, like, the the sort of the angel uh, carcass scene, right? That that uh, the mm-hmm. one body is sort of, like, 
splayed out and uh, uh, sounds of lambs. <laughs> um, but I wanted to go to something that wasn't quite, you know, the sounds of the lambs has been justly rewarded everywhere. And I, uh, I wanted to give something to signs because I, uh, it's one of my faves. It's, it's up there with my very, very, very top, uh, M. Night Shyamalan movies. Anyway, the 2002 cinematography nominees, that was the year that Conrad L. Hall wins his posthumous uh, Oscar for Road to Perdition. Other nominees that year were Dion Beebe for Chicago, Ed Lockman for Far From Heaven, Michael Ballhaus for Gangs of New York, and Pavel Edelman for The Pianist, which is a good collection of cinematographers, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. that's some talent in there. Um, obviously... I love Road to Perdition. I love Road to Perdition more than most people do. And I think it looks tremendous. Far From Heaven looks tremendous. For all of the problems that I have with Gangs of New York, I think that cinematography is really good. Um, The battle sequence especially. Yeah. So it comes down to Chicago, which is a movie I love, but maybe for so many more things than necessarily the cinematography, which isn't bad, but maybe gets overshadowed by a lot of other things about that movie. And then The Pianist, which is a movie that just has faded from my memory almost entirely, which I remember the cinematography of that being very appropriately sort of sparse and, 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 and yes, uh, grays grays and, and chilly and, and that whole kind of thing. I don't know. I'm not trying to direct you in a certain direction, but I do think I understand why it might be easy to reduce the cinematography of Chicago. However, I think some of the, like, lighting niftiness of that movie and just the flat fact that there are images in that movie that are entirely indelible to cinema culture at this point, I think. I think that's right. I think for the cell block tango scene alone, I think uh, probably earns that nomination. Uh, So I am booting Pavel Edelman for The Pianist from 2002 and throwing in Tak Fujimoto for Signs. It's only right and correct that I do so. All right, Chris, this is your last selection for part four. Black Eyed Peas have calcium. All the calcium in the world ain't gonna make up for this nasty taste. It might have made up for your broke arm. Oh, come on, mom. I broke my arm because I just got hurt. Size, this is gross. Nasty. It is not nasty. Everybody else likes it. You're gonna eat. Ending this episode with a bang. Coming full circle somewhat to how I started it. Uh, We're talking Best Actress 1994. We're talking another Spike Lee performer. One of our favorites on this show that we had several options for how to get her into this movie. And I felt very strong or to get her onto our list. And I felt very strongly that this is the one. I watched this movie and I don't understand how this wasn't a thing. I am talking about Alfre Woodard in Crooklyn. I first of all fucking love Crooklyn. It's this has got to be absent, one of your top two or three Spike Lee movies, I would imagine. Absent right? Malcolm X and Do the Right Thing, it's my favorite Spike Lee movie. Yeah. Period. Um, yeah. It's if you don't love Crooklyn, my assumption is you haven't seen Crooklyn. Um, Crooklyn is a coming of age story loosely based off of his own life but the protagonist is um the daughter of a family who the parents are um 
obviously played by Alfre Woodard and Delroy Ledeau. It is, I mean, it's the the Ladybird before Ladybird. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I think those movies go. They're very different, but they yeah they go very in tandem in my mind in terms of the type of emotional response that they get out of me. Um, Alfre Woodard, I I certainly won't spoil it for people who haven't seen the movie. There is an emotional element to um, her portrayal of this mother. Um, And there is part of the movie where she does go away because the daughter goes to visit family down south. And um, you see less of her in that movie to the point where she was a New York runner-up for supporting actress. I still think it's a lead. Not that to say that, you know, kids can't be leads, but I do think that she and Delroy Lindo dominate enough of the movie to be leads for it. Alfre um, Woodard getting bounced around between supporting and lead categories is, was a thing in the early 90s because that was also well, yes. her passion fish narrative in 92. Which we talked about putting on this list. Yeah. Obviously, we were huge advocates for her performance in Clemency as well. Yeah. Um, Alfre Woodard in this movie is just like when I think of quintessential movie moms, she's like in my top three movie moms for this movie. Um, Just, uh, I mean, dealing with her uh, rascally kids, but also, you know, I mean, talking about the movie, it's hard to not reduce it down to cliches, but it's like the best version of that coming of age movie. Yeah you've maybe seen in terms of you know standard beats of growing up and having uh your parent be a presence in there and like what Mm -hmm. the family goes through uh living together yeah um there's also a direct address to the screen moment in the movie that is just like uh sobs waterworks etc just because it's alfre woodard is one of the greats um currently living and uh yeah we want to bring her back to the oscar fold we sure do uh once again chris we find ourselves being sucked into the vortex that is the 1994 best actress race (laughs) (laughs) we can't avoid it we can't avoid it um i think i would be willing to bet this is the best uh, this not even the best actress race i would say this is the single most discussed category in the history of this had oscar buzz more than best actress of 2002 100 percent we talk about it all because the, time. the dynamics of it are so. I mean, listen. If you've listened to our show, you probably are well aware of it now. Yeah. Jessica Lange wins for Blue Sky, a movie that sat on a shelf for two years or something, and kind of wins off of. Still, she gets all these nominations partly over several years for these movies that really have no footprint, right? In, you know, the cultural consciousness, right? Because the perception that she got a conciliatory Oscar for Tootsie when she should have won for Francis, but she in right. the lead category that year, but she's up against Meryl and Sophie's choice. Right. I don't love Francis. I don't not think beating those allegations about hating Jessica Lang, man. I love Jessica Lang. I know. I Is know. I'm wrong only kidding to look you. at I'm a little Lang. Um, <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> Okay, the other nominees. Jodie Foster and Nell, who, if she didn't already have two recent Oscars in the past decade, 
could have conceivably had an Oscar for that movie. Yeah. Miranda Richardson uh, for Tom and Viv, a movie that is not great, but she's having a hot moment. Winona Ryder for Little Women, uh, making a hit movie at the end of the year and a famous character following up her supporting nomination for Age of Innocence. Mm -hmm. And then Susan, Susan Sarandon for The Client, which, of course, gets lots of sneers. We've talked about it. We think that's a cool nomination. I love her in that movie. I love Susan. Yeah. Um, I think Alfred I know where Woodard you're going here. in this lineup. It's just like it's right there. Granted, yeah. it was a a summer movie, yeah, it was a studio movie, and it didn't make a whole lot of money. It also Those... is like Spike Lee following up, uh, Malcolm X with a movie that feels like such a downshift that I think, in terms of like very very different kind of movie, that's the thing. And I think if you're talking about the Oscar conversation, I think a lot of people are like, oh well. He's, you know, downshifting from big Oscar, you know, movie. And this is something so different that I think it was just sort of never, you know, New York film critics uh, runner up status notwithstanding. I think it just wasn't ever in the conversation. Which is such a fucking shame. Yeah, it's um, a huge Because, I mean, like, it should have run the board that yeah. year. Um, we know who I'm booting. I'm booting Jessica yeah, Lange for Blue Sky, a bad performance in yeah. a bad movie. Yeah. Um, we we love Jessica though. We do we love her. Just we not do. in the movies Just that we're not her in for. Blue Sky. Yeah, exactly. All right, Joe, wrap us up. Where are you taking us? Would that it were so simple? Uh, this is, I mean, talk about a performance that I have talked about a lot. Uh, uh, loving this performance, this would have been my winner uh, in the year of 2016 in Best Supporting Actor. I am, of course, talking about. Um, my beloved Alden Ehrenreich in the Coen Brothers' Hail Caesar, which is a performance that does not lose its delightfulness or its uh, comedic impact every time I see that movie or every time I see parts of that movie. His uh, scenes from that movie are very easy to sort of like pick out and revisit. Um, obviously, the scene opposite Ray Fiennes uh, uh, trying to get the line "Would that it were so simple" out of his mouth, and it's just old-fashioned verbal. You know what I mean? Like perfectly written, perfectly performed comedy. But there's other stuff with like. So his character's name is Hobie Doyle. He's this sort of. Uh, uh, lovely lunkhead of a you know film performer the scene where he's practicing his little lasso tricks waiting for (laughs) his date is so charming he's so sort of um unassuming and and just in this sea of self-interested and sort of uh you know, smarmy and underhanded, all these sort of like these dark angles of Hollywood, right? And, and uh, Brolin's putting out fires all throughout the studio, and Clooney's this sort of cowardly leading man, and uh, Channing Tatum ultimately is a Nazi? What is, where is, where, right? He's <laughs> some sort of like proto crypto, like of fascist, yeah. right wing yeah. type of bad. Um, and like all this stuff is going on and like there is sweet baby boy Alden Ehrenreich who's just sort of doing the right thing and being just shows up and exists and is funny the best that he can be and it was 
you know, this kind of star-making performance that unfortunately leapt him into the role that would uh, steal years from his career when he was uh, cast as Han Solo, a casting that even before that movie became what it became and it, it, even before it ran into like production woes and whatever when people were fairly optimistic about that movie as soon as he was cast in that i was like oh that's not good for him they're gonna like, chew him up and spit him out it's just a no-win situation it's just an absolutely no-win situation he's finally i think emerging from that i i was so so on cocaine bear but i thought he was by far the best part of cocaine bear I thought oh i didn't so even funny. realize he's in cocaine oh bear. He's... probably because my you know unilateral yeah disinterested cocaine um, I, I, I think he's easily my favorite part of that movie. I'm hoping that, um, we're on a little bit of a comeback trail. I didn't see the Sundance movie. I know you were less positive on that one than most people were. It's um, deeply fine. Uh, very happy he's back. Yeah. It's watchable because partly because he and his co-star are watchable. So I'm very, uh, much pro Alden Ehrenreich and, and definitely was my number one supporting actor that year for Hell Caesar, a movie that was released so early in that year. Like that was a February release and, uh, was, did end up getting nominated for art direction. Art direction there right? was, yeah. what was interesting was there was absolutely zero campaign for that exactly. movie because the, yeah. Cohen's were so they did not care. They did not like. And, and the reviews point, were they get kind Oscar of, nominations. They don't want the reviews were kind of middling. Also, I remember like as many people were disappointed by that movie as 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 who liked it. Um, I remember not loving all of it, but the things that are great about that movie, also yeah. the No Dame sequence, yeah. is just like just incredible. But you yeah. know, it's maybe you know doesn't hit. Yeah. everywhere yeah that movie. no dames should have been a song nominee that year but we already One had a song nominee percent. um uh anyway um nominees that year that was mahershal ali's first of two oscar wins he wins from moonlight uh jeff bridges nominated for hell or high water for playing a rascally old uh coot as has been his uh tendency lately lucas hedges baby boy for manchester by the sea a performance that when i saw manchester by the sea i think my initial thought was man he's not going to get nominated but lucas hedges is so good in this movie and then he does end up getting nominated uh dev patel for lion and then michael shannon for nocturnal animals this one isn't hard um Michael Shannon's already a performer that I tend to like less often than people tend to like him. I like him in the sort of oddest of circumstances. I'm a big fan of his performance in The Runaways, um, a movie that nobody really remembers or talks about. Um, I don't like the performances he gets Oscar nominated for. I think Nocturnal Animals is a bad movie, and I don't love his performance in it. And... It was a surprise nomination that um, was not a good surprise. I, who did he? I know that like Aaron Taylor Johnson won the Globe, but like there was somebody else in 2016 that was mm. uh, pegged for a nomination that didn't get it because Michael Shannon got there. I'm instead. also trying to remember the timeline that like Michael Shannon gets nominated for everything for 99 Holmes except the Oscar. That would have been 2014. 14. Yeah, maybe, I maybe think it's that's fifteen. Right. It's, right, and so it's like part of this nomination feels like it's, uh, you know, mm -hmm. mixed up with that. Yeah, yes. Anyway, that's my easy boot for that year. It's Michael Shannon for Nocturnal Animals. So, 
get it out of there. I don't want to talk about Nocturnal Animals. Bad movie. <laughs> Nocturnal Animals having an Oscar nomination, though, means we never have to see it again. That is talk true. about it for the show. That is true. That's that a movie that I shit. saw at TIFF back-to-back with Arrival, and you couldn't have had a more of a whiplash. Thank God it was... I'm pretty sure it was Nocturnal Animals and then Arrival. Um, because oh, I was... Because it's like, what if people watched two Amy Adams movies together? Right. And it's like, I almost wonder that her not getting nominated for Arrival is partly to blame from Nocturnal Animals. I would love the symmetry of being able to blame that, but I don't think, even with it getting nominated for it, Michael Shannon, I don't think do anybody... well with BAFTA? Like, I don't remember. People liked that movie for some reason. Blech. Blech. All right, Chris. Uh, do you want to run down... The 20 nominees that we recognized in part four before we go into our goodbyes. I absolutely would love to. Okay, from the top, Best Actress of 2007, Tong Wei in Lust Caution. Best Art Direction of 1999, The Blair Witch Project. Best Actor of 2020, Delroy Lindo, The Five Bloods. Best Actor of 2001, Gene Hackman in The Royal Tenenbaums. Best Picture of 1996, The Birdcage. Best Original Score of 2006, Clint Mansell, The Fountain. Best Actor of 2014, Ray Fiennes, The Grand Budapest Hotel. Best Supporting Actress of 1989, Shirley MacLaine, Steel Magnolias. Best Art Direction, Color of 1946, A Matter of Life and Death. Best Costume Design of 1986, Labyrinth. Best Cinematography 2004, Harris Savitas for Birth. Best Actress 1968, Mia Farrow, Rosemary's Baby. I said Mia Farrow in Rosemary's Baby. Thank you, Tyra. Best Supporting Actress of 2002, Andrea Martin, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Best Original Screenplay 1980, Airplane. Best Director, 1997, Casey Lemon's Eve's Bayou. Best Original Song, 1989, Poor Unfortunate Souls from The Little Mermaid. Best Actor of 1993, David Thewlis for Naked. Best Cinematography of 2002, Tak Fujimoto Signs. Best Actress of 1994, Alfre Woodard in Crooklyn. Best Supporting Actor, 2016, Alden Ehrenreich, Hail Caesar. We also want to thank our guest, Kevin Jacobson, who gave us Best Actress of 2001, Naomi Watts, Mulholland Drive, and Richard Lawson, who gave us Best Supporting Actress of 2011, Kate Hudson, in Something Borrowed. 22 bulletproof choices. Once again, Chris, we are almost through our 100 snubs. I'm already... It's almost over. It all comes to this next week. Our final picks and our pick for the biggest Oscar snub of all time. It's crazy. What a month. What a month we've had. Uh, listeners, that is our episode. If you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow us on Twitter at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz and on Instagram at thishadoscarbuzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? 
You can find me on Letterboxd and Twitter at Chris v. File. That's F-E-I-L. And I am on Letterboxd and Twitter at Joe Reed, Reed spelled R-E-I-D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility. So flotsam jetsam, now I got her, boys. Let's write a nice review. Uh, that's all for this week but we hope you'll be back next week for more snubs a ticket